moisture like sun Lays me down with my mind She runs throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown with golden brown Every time just like the last On her ship tied to the mast Two distant lands Takes both my hands Never a frown With golden brown Howdy folks Double J back here Coming at you live slash recorded From my studio Slash spare bedroom Real deep in them foothills of Appalachia, directly from the number one drug overdose death capital of America. Now, normally, folks of the interwebs, this is the point in time where I prescribe a shenanigan-infused journey into the mind of this particular garbage can dude. However, not today. Today's a far more serious topic, as we're diving into the case of the quadruple homicide of four young adults on the University of Idaho campus back on November 13th, 2022, and the subsequent railroading of an alleged suspect and perpetrator of those crimes, suspect Brian Koberger, and the complete lack of a case in which the Idaho authorities have put together in regard to suspect Koberger and the apparent and gross violation of suspect Koberger's constitutional rights. So this is a tragic tale in many regards. The four young adults who were victimized by these heinous crimes and this quadruple homicide, and the subsequent violations of suspect Koberger's rights and the lack of justice being brought by the Idaho authorities in regards to these homicides. A very tragic case all around. I'm joined today with New York Patriot and Ron from the Wicked Planet podcast, to discuss these matters in what is volume two of this series that I've entitled The Idaho Four Case, Koberger Did Not Do It. Anyhow, folks of the interwebs, I hope you enjoy today's podcast conversation as much one can enjoy a conversation in regard to the quadruple homicide of four young college students on the University of Idaho campus and the subsequent miscarriage of justice in trying to bring the perpetrators of these homicides to justice. Golden brown, fine attemptress, through the ages she's heading west, from far away, stays for a day, never a frown with golden Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the NY Patriot Show. In this episode, I got my buddy Ron from Wicked Planet joining me, co-hosting the NY Patriot Show with me today. And we are talking more about Brian Kohlberger and the Idaho Four. And we got Vance on, who was with us in part one, so it only makes sense for him to be here in part two. Uh, We got the three of us again here to talk about 
just some of the stuff with the Idaho four uh, killings, things that we didn't get into last time. Um, even some of the stuff that we talked about last time, I think is interesting that has come up with the defense recently as well. So that is something I would like to uh, kind of like reiterate and uh, just some other things we didn't get to and uh, some stuff that I wanted to just bring up when it came to occultism. Uh, enough about that. And I am going to introduce Ron from the Wicked Planet. What is up, Ron? Let everybody know who you are in case they don't already and where they can find your show. Okay. Hey, thanks for having me uh, back on for part two on this. And I got to say, we're probably going to do a part three. I was thinking that too. Because there's so, there's so much to this case and it's ongoing, right? So we got to yeah. kind of stay up with it. But yeah, I'm Ron from New England from the Wicked Planet podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Ron from New England, uh, on Twitter at Ron from NE. And you can find the Wicked Planet anywhere as you can find a podcast. We're there. So come and check us out. Awesome. Thank you very much, Ron. And I got all his links in the bottom as well. And JJ, what's going on, my man? You want to say what's up to everybody and let them know where they can find your stuff as well. Absolutely. Nick, Ron, great to, great to join you all again yeah. for this discussion. I appreciate the invite. Uh, JJ Vance, I host the Operation GCD podcast. That's Garbage Can Dude. My smart ass way of saying that I live in a garbage can world. And uh like to introduce folks to the interwebs to to, the, to just the general thesis of that uh, whole podcast. I just uh like to mash together some comedy and conspiracy theory and uh aim to offer a shenanigan infused journey into whatever thought process I have on the subjects. So great to join you all again today and welcome welcome uh, folks to listen to any of the uh the shows I've done there and uh, looking forward to this one again today on the Idaho situation. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Real. Yeah. And his links are in the bottom as well. I think all of our stuff is in there right now as we're live. So you can go check their stuff out now if you want, or you can wait until after the show. But uh, yeah. So uh, one thing I did want to, uh, there's actually a few things I would like to touch on in this episode, but uh, yeah. besides the stuff that the defense has mentioned and Believe it or not, I do find that whole thing you even told me about taking the whole gas pump was actually bizarre to me. <laughs> right. You know, those are two things I definitely wanted to touch on. But I figured maybe just to get like the high weirdness and strangeness out of the way and then kind of just go into like the stuff with the case. I was going to bring up some of just the weird things that I found with the case numerically and occult wise. Uh, I'll just spend a few minutes and just go through that real quick because I know I think I mentioned it a few times. With, I think I mentioned it with you guys and even other people that I've touched on this topic with. I have said I've done this shit and like I've just never pulled it up. So, no, I'm, and if I may just interject real quick, I'm excited to hear some of those aspects of it because I do think there is potentially some occult aspects to this entire situation. Yeah, there's just like weird things like with the numbers and just like with the names and stuff. Uh, I did find, I mean, people always do talk about 13. And when it came to uh, this I series that I'm even dropping now, only part one's out now, going into part two and three, there is like a lot of things with like one and three. I mean, even with magic, I mean, that like the one and the three is kind of like a big thing. So I did find it interesting that it, like even on November 30th, one dude and three chicks, November 13th, one dude and three chicks got killed. So you kind of have a double... A double yeah. 13 right there but i mean that, that that could be just you know who knows it's an interesting analysis though i mean it's one i mean i, I look at stuff a lot from a factual basis so i'm not always paying attention to these kind of aspects yeah. I, I am intrigued by them so I, I like to hear about them this one isn't really so much a cult it's just like i mean i probably should have brought this up at the end but i just do find this weird you know there was like seven uncompleted phone calls that were made from the phone of conclaves 
from her former longtime boyfriend, a fellow student, from 226 to 252. And then Mogan also called her, if I'm saying her name right, her former boyfriend three times with the similar results from 244 to 252. I just even find it weird that these two girls were getting phone calls and dealing with this dude up until the same time. And then like now there's people dead and like, I, I'm sure they probably didn't even question this dude. It just seems very weird. Like uh, yeah. why was this one guy like dealing with two of the girls inside the house? It's that's a good analysis. If I may add a couple, couple notes on that. Yeah, bring, go for it. Go for bring it. Some on that, some more uh, data on that, on that uh, question just asked. Yeah. So you're, you're pronouncing uh, Madison Mogan and uh, Kaylee Gonzalez. It's, it's spelled slightly different. It's pronounced with her last name, but Mogan. Yeah. I believe that's pronounced correctly. Mogan. So yeah, there were actually um, seemingly there was surveillance footage from the uh, the local bar they were at that night just prior to their returning home where they were actually speaking with Kaylee Gonzalez's ex-boyfriend uh, Jack. Uh, it, I don't recall the last. I believe it's his pronounced. I don't know the pr pronunciation of his name. So I think it's Decor. It's Jack D. Jack Decor, I believe is how it's how it's pronounced. But yeah, um, so they they clearly had some interactions you know, face to face, but they yeah, the two girls were apparently calling him, uh, incessantly there just prior to the murders. And in fact, those time frames you just showed, that was the initial time frame that law enforcement had developed as the time of the murders, because that was when the last time their phones were used. Oh, okay. Now that, that timeline was shifted later as a result of a number of other factors, but initially yeah. that was the initial timeline. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of this. The security cameras near the home picked up the sound of whimpering, a loud thud, and a dog barking numerous times starting starting at 417. Um, you know, and uh, there's a 17 in here, and I think there's going to be other couple other 17s. Just for me, from my my experience, I'm you know, from what how I see stuff, I do think 17 is very much kind of like um, very like beast-like, or almost may involve death in itself, and. When it comes to magic, um, a lot, the abramellum ritual or any ritual that is kind of based on coming in contact with your holy guardian angel, which is like kind of like, you know, the serious shit with magic. You do. I mean, Crowley said it supposedly about the abramellum when he did it at Loch Ness. Other people have said it. For some reason you hear a dog barking. They call it a hellhound. You will swear that you hear like a dog barking at your door. Weird shit. Um, so like even with this, it's like the four seventeen, and like the third sphere is silence. The fourth one, when it comes to magic, that's really when sound kicks in. So it's like, are we hearing a dog bark on the fourth sphere in seventeen? It's just weird. That is weird because if you think about it, just from a standpoint of being on in the environment there, like why did the dog start? Why did people start hearing in the camera pick up the dog barking at four seventeen? It almost implies that a door was open or a window was left open or something that caused the yeah. noise to start then. As a result of, I mean, that is the time frame of the what that now law enforcement authorities claim is the the murder timeline in and around four seventeen. But you know, if it, it, it didn't start at four seventeen, so oh, oh. if the crime started, you know, twelve minutes earlier, roughly or so, why did the dog only start barking then? It almost implies that a door was left open or something like that. And again, police later indicate both doors were left open: the back sliding glass door and the front door. Mm. Now, <laughs> they later flip flopped on that in later press conferences you know, a few weeks after the crimes, but the initial statements by law enforcement did in fact state that the front door was wide open. Neighbors had also reported this prior to their police response that day on November 13th and that the sliding glass door was open. 
and uh, again, maybe you guys have a different take or perspective on, on that kind of statement about the dog barking, but it almost seems like that seems to be a, a strong indicator when individuals may have departed that, that property and left a door open maybe, or, you know, certainly. Yeah, entering or leaving, one of the two. Yeah, right? you're right, exactly. It does kind of it does kind of fit part of the timeline when they, because their estimated timeline was between four and four twenty five that the murders actually happened, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. So so if they're coming in and the neighbors are saying at roughly four seventeen, they're hearing whimpering and hearing the dog barking. Well, the whimpering could actually be the dog too. Exactly. We don't know that. My question is, why wasn't the dog freaking out during this whole operation? Or, or did the dog just run and hide? I mean, we don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a clue in the case or not. It's just interesting to bring up. Mm -hmm. And, and while we're on this real quick and then, and why I'll let you get back to your gematria. I just had a question now when they said neighbors heard. So I, I discovered that there was a neighbor, uh, by the name of, uh, Anan Harsh Mm -hmm. that goes by, uh, chef Dizzy who, uh, you know, right after, you know, like the next day or whatever, he was posting on Facebook that he, uh, you know, three girls were killed right next door to him. He didn't hear any screams. He didn't hear this. He didn't hear anything. And then he gets, he goes to get interviewed by somebody on the news. And he said, oh yeah, no, I heard screams and this and that. So he had contradicted himself and he caught it because he went back on his Facebook post and he edited that post to take away that he didn't hear any screaming. Do we know anything about this harsh guy? I mean, you bring up some good points, and that is that is the storyline of of a non harsh relative to these these uh these murders. I mean, not much outside of you know he uh, he has done a couple podcast interviews I've seen, and you know, kind of further elaborating on some of those points from his very lengthy tome he posted there on his social media. Because I mean, it was lengthy, if I recall correctly. But he seems to me to be more of like just kind of a sociopathic type of character who wanted to get some attention as opposed to any kind of actual possible suspect in the crimes. I know early on the interwebs were, were abound with pointing the finger at this guy, but you know, it didn't, it didn't seem to have much validity to me. Yeah. So, so you think there's nothing to the neighbor then? Yeah. I mean, based upon the available information, it seems unlikely. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it up real quick and see what you guys thought. But no, you bring up a good point because there's another neighbor that came out recently after that, uh, uh, fraternity president uh, from one of the University of Idaho fraternities there had overdosed back in March and died and uh, was one of his fraternity brothers. He came out and did some uh, some interviews across some podcasts as well. And I, I got an opportunity to hear one of those. And he stated that he was never questioned by law enforcement and he lives directly next door or directly in front and can see the murder house. So it makes you kind of wonder how much door knocking and investigations were conducted around the immediate vicinity and the immediate, uh, you know, neighbors. And again, this guy's in the social circle with that, with that, uh, with the murder victims and in his, the, the, uh, the fraternity brother of the, the overdosed death fraternity president. I don't think he gave his actual name. Maybe his, maybe only his first name, but what was interesting there was he actually validated some of the, you know, other statements of, of uh, townsfolk that that wasn't a known drug house. And he stated he had purchased drugs there before. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I, I want to ask uh, maybe you guys know me might have even brought it up in the in the last one but i forgot have they ever actually interviewed this doordash dude or whoever the doordash was i don't see i don't think i've seen even even reading the documents and the back and forth between the defense counsel of brian koberger and the state and the, all this discovery business 
there hasn't been a lot of focus on that from from uh, from what the what the uh, statements are being made, and I don't think the the state, the investigators in the state of Idaho have really divulged that information. I think they've claimed to have interviewed them, but there's oh, no, okay. you know, and they claim to have ruled them out, but there's no, you know, details to those claims. I suppose is what I'm getting at. Gotcha. No, I was just, you know, if it's like the last person there before they were seen alive, like I mean, right. Um, and I'd love to know. They don't think they've released what kind of vehicle this individual was driving. Oh, I think that's imperative, especially relative to Koberger's counsel statements, because Koberger's counsel is convinced that they have no, the law enforcement has no idea what vehicle they're seeing on camera, according to according to recent filings. That's what Koberger's counsel's position is, and it seems to be valid based upon the available information. So yeah, I think I think that's one of the biggest points is the DoorDash driver. You know, who who was it? What kind of vehicle were they driving? Were they really investigated? You know, they have to know who the DoorDash driver was. They have to. Oh Absolutely. yeah, I mean, because that's easy to that's easy to figure yeah, out. See who the hell's yeah. phone it went to that did the delivery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's way it's way easy to figure out who the actual door uh, dash driver was, and he if they have not questioned him, that's a serious dropping of somebody's ball right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Both> balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Ron, that's a good point, and there's a lot of that uh, dropping of balls along this uh, invest- oh, yeah. investigation. Oh, that was great. Um. All right, I'll get back into this real quick, and then we'll, we'll go on to the other stuff. Um, you know, I don't know if this is anything, but I do know that, like, you know, <clears throat> Utah was actually named after Pata, which is a, the guy, like an Egyptian god of springs. Now, I don't know if Latak County has anything to do with that as well. I do know L.A. or Los Angeles can mean, you know, uh, fallen angels. So, like, who knows if this is even an occult play of Lata, who knows where that comes from, but so you're saying Idaho is named after an no Utah, country. Utah is oh, sorry, named you, after sorry, Utah. Disregard Utah, Utah, yeah. okay. But yeah. I mean, we were talking Mormon country in Idaho. I mean, that was just as much as Utah was founded by the Mormons, so was Idaho. And in fact, there's a number of very uh, wealthy and prominent well, we'll call them prominent just for the sake of the word prominent uh, <laughs> uh, Mormon fundamentalist sects that have uh, long been established within the state of, of Idaho, not just Utah. And the one I'm trying to think of off the top of my head, that's interesting. I can't think of. They own a they have a vast real uh, vast interest in a number of different industries, including, uh, I mean, you name it. And they're worth probably half a billion dollars. That 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 one fundamental sect just upon their their company holdings. Wow, I wonder if they have. Uh, you know what I found out? They're big into uh, those uh, pyramid scheme things. Oh, big they're time. actually legal in Utah. You can you can run a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Yeah, big time. In fact, uh, the U.S. Uh, congressman that was out of Utah a few years ago, Jason Shavitz, I think that's how he made a lot of his money was through one of those pyramid. He's a Mormon. He uh, made him a lot of his money through one of those uh, multi-marketing schemes there as well. Yeah, I, I think when you're talking uh, the occult, though, and that's a good point you bring up with the ancient Egyptian um, namesake, because uh, that is the, the Mormon. I grew up Mormon. Uh, the Mormon philosophies and theology is deeply rooted in ancient Egypt. and. Mm-hmm. Thank and on you. top of that, relative to Latal County, um, it's interesting you bring up that does sound very much very similar to that ancient Egyptian god, um, yeah. because the people who founded Latal County and founded uh, the city of Moscow and the University of Idaho were all seemingly occultists. They had some astro theological uh, belief systems. They they had a small club called the Pleiades Club, which oh. seemed to be some connection with the Pleiades star constellations, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I, I might have to look into that after this. Maybe that'll be in part three. Uh, <laughs> so this I want to show, I mean, obviously, since they died, 
a few days earlier. I mean, they were going to have an autopsy eventually, obviously. But, I mean, again, now on November 17th, they did the autopsy. Then on May 17th, Latah County District announced that Kohlberger was indicted by a grand jury on five charges, four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary. So you get like a 17 again. Well, if we can if we can just pause right there on that on that because yeah. I find that interesting. I'd like to get your your and Ron's thoughts on that, you know, because so they arrest the man on December 30th, right? And they he has a public arraignment hearing scheduled, you know, well before the May 17th day where his indictment came down there for I believe June 12th, right? I believe it was June 12th. So, you know, did they pick this date on the 17th? Is this possibly some sort of intentional date in which to 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 do the indictment? Because it's strange to me and, and highly abnormal from a, a law enforcement perspective and a criminal justice perspective, which I have an education history in uh, professionally, that, that they would wait five months, essentially almost five months, to, uh, yeah. to, to indict the man when they, when they already have him arrested, right? Interesting. And, and they have already have a public arraignment hearing scheduled you know, just a few weeks after this indictment. So it, it does draw into question now that you point out all these 17s, was that, was that date chosen intentionally possibly? I mean, even the first date of the 1230, I mean, if you want to stop playing with numbers, I mean, even that would give you the Fibonacci, you would get a three and then another three and a six. I mean, you would start getting like, if you started playing with those, you get three, six, nine, but that could be off. But yeah, I have to check these dates now. Maybe like even what was going on with the moon or uh, how many days between like, that could all actually show stuff. So what, what, uh, what, are, what are your all's thoughts though on the arraignment situation? I'd like to hear that. If you guys have any, any if you guys have anything, any specific thoughts to share, like do you, do you all view just generally speaking, do you all view that as some sort of possibly conspiratorial or, or uh, malfeasance on the part of uh, law enforcement authorities that they would wait five months? Cause I mean, it's tough for me not to, to look at it that way. No, no, I, I definitely, think, I mean, I think his whole thing, even with that, the, the waiting and even the fact of like how they did that, uh, whatever they do that, a grand jury or whatever like that. Was yeah, like, yep. that's the, that, that, so that was the grand jury and they came down with the indictment there on an issued on the 17th there. Yep. Yeah, I just found that whole thing was very, very weird. I, I don't think it's unusual to take that long, to be honest with you. I mean, you're talking a multiple count capital murder case here, right? So, so in order for them to make sure that they can actually get charges to stick, you know, they can hold him, you know, without bail. Uh, although, you know, it's supposed to have time, it's supposed to be in a timely manner, right? Exactly. But, That's yeah. But five months in a case like this, I don't think is really out of bounds. I mean, do I think it's too long? Yeah, it's too long because if they, had enough evidence to to arrest him in the first place they would have had they would have had to had enough to go ahead and arraign him like like technically he probably should have been arraigned in the next week or two after being arrested right 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 right, right. and then and then and then you know it can, it can go to the next step after that you know yeah, it, gives, so- it gives him time to work work around the charges and figure out exactly what charges they're actually going to go after him with. Because, you know, you have to be tried on the actual charges. Sure. They can't they can't just make charges up after yeah. you've been arraigned or especially indicted. Whatever charges are based to get those court proceedings done are, are the charges that they do have to stick with, unless, of course, there's some type of plea deal 
Uh, and then they can play it down to lesser charges or whatever, which I don't see happening in this at all no. because no. because they're asking for the death penalty. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, and it's not it's not uniquely or expressly. I'm sorry, it's not expressly um, incriminating that law enforcement would delay and everything else like that. It's just it seems very incriminating. My and points to malfeasance from my perspective because you have a public arraignment hearing scheduled already, you know, and. You're, and the state is now fighting tooth and nail to not release discovery to the to the defendant to Coburger's counsel. So, but yeah, you make a good point. And, and generally speaking, it's not necessarily expressly, um, you know, mal, you know, an act of malfeasance there. I just feel like uh, I don't know if it's so much the time. I think more of how they how they did that. I thought was just kind of shady. I agree. I mean, it's it, at least on its surface, even if it wasn't shady, it has the appearance of, of exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, I mean, we can we can say that the whole thing is kind of shady. <laughs> JJ, uh, JJ, let's. Uh, I want you to go over a little bit of how the uh, defense attorney, uh, who's a uh, uh, public defender, I don't know Correct. if people knew that, uh, it went after the prosecution uh, in a in the court hearing with the judge and said, you know, I'm not accusing them of doing anything wrong. But, but no, she. You're uh, right. She. she they're withhold, yeah, they're withholding discovery on this now. They, the prosecution, has to give anything and everything that they have for evidence against a defendant, Koberger. In this case, they've got to give that information to the defense because if they're withholding information and that gets discovered halfway through the trial that they've been withholding evidence. Well, that's like an immediate mistrial. Well, I mean, you're, you're bringing up some excellent points and I have some, some great responses for you because they're already, they're already allegedly already breached that whole, uh, that whole process with the uh, Brady violations that occurred back in March. So Brady violations are the withholding of exculpatory evidence from, from a defendant. And uh, there's already been Brady, but that's what I'm saying. There's already, there's already been some of that going on. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt Nick's, uh, the, finishing up with some of the Gematria stuff, but yeah, I would love to tackle, tackle his responses. If, if Nick's, if Nick's done with the, uh, some of his cold aspects here, I think oh, he's, yeah. he's ready to yeah. drop some, some G on us though. And I, I am intrigued <laughs> by some of this stuff that, you know, it does, right. whether, whether it's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, metaphysical connection or intentional acts, you know, it's, it's strange that these things do pop up. I find, I feel like. Yeah. That's, I've even said before, it could just be metaphysical stuff. Um, real quick, you know, Brian Kohlberger lived in G building um i don't have the gematria up for it but i'll I'll just let you know people can check um the, he was in the g building and then that the house the king's you know king's road first of all even in magic it's yod hey vod hey that's a magical formula it's king queen prince and princess i mean kings are all over tarot cards crowns are everywhere i mean kings are used in occultism so i find it weird that he was in g building and then you have an address of 11 and 22 which could right. add up to 33 king oh, king's road <laughs> right. and then the thing that i want to just it, it's, it's it's like it's almost like you know it's just turning into the fucking oj case this sheath <laughs> that they're going on about this fucking sheath that is like the nail in the coffin it's a kabar sheath you type in Kabar into Gematria thing, and it equals 33. Interesting. Yeah. I'm like, oh, even the sheath they're going on about equals 33. Um, real quick, I just ran their names, and then I'm going to say this real quick, and then I'm done. Madison. No, I, like, I like it, Nick. I like it. That's good stuff. 
Madison Mogan, um, some of the matches, Fox, Adrena Chrome, Lord Amun Ra, Hollywood, Butterfly, and Judgment Day. I thought like the Fox and the Hollywood is interesting because, you know, this is very popular. Butterfly is kind of like a symbol of uh, rebirth from death of the moth. Judgment Day, I want people to remember that one. And Judgment Day, that's very important, I think. Um, then Madison, just her name alone, Corona, Crocodile. Um, in Ishtar, nothing crazy. Her last name, NASA, Cancer. Now, the Cancer symbol is in the middle of the Masonic pillars. So I did highlight that. And Simba. It's funny that I'm bringing that up, but we'll see. Well, NASA, that's interesting because we're back to, again, the origins of that town and the university both of this Palladius Club. Oh. You know, this, the, this club that, that, that had some sort of veneration for the uh, this constellation Palladius. I believe it's the seven sisters i think there were seven seven wives of the original employees of the university to include the original founder and dean of the university his wife i believe was the leader of that club there were seven phone calls made earlier there you go <laughs> uh with Zana, her first just that name you do get scorpio which can be associated with death and anubis so i thought that was interesting starman uh cern um interesting then kernodal You'll get Moonchild, which is a book by Crowley. Well, that's interesting because there's a the, the, one of the corollary things that I think may be going on here is a money laundering operation out of a Moonstone Bank just north of the university. Oh. Interesting. And then her name also matches Judgment Day, oh. Tower of Babel, and the Lion King. Oh, there you go. The reason I even highlighted this stuff, and it's for the people, I guess, listening, and this might come out before part three does. When I even cover the eye, I'm doing uh, occult symbolism in your head. I started running numbers on stuff in the eye in the third part. Yo, I came up with Scar, the Lion King, Simba, and another name. All four, like they were all matching parts of the eye. And I'm like, that's not by fucking accident. I'm sorry. So this is kind of a synchronistic event fighting yeah, yes. and Lion King here, which huh? Which is why I have yeah, which is why I have it highlighted because I'm like, so that means these numbers I didn't want to go through it. I pulled up Wednesday, somewhere where I was showing either God names or parts of the eye. These numbers came up then because I saw them. So the, the, this is actually weird for me. <laughs> sure. Then you got uh, Kaylee uh, Gonzalez. Yep. Uh, that one does have Anton Lavey. I thought that was interesting. Okay. That um, is interesting. But you know what? I might have screwed that up. I think in a I'm almost positive there was an Anton LaVey on one of the other ones, which is why I thought it was interesting. Uh maybe I didn't highlight it or I'm confused, but I'm almost positive Anton LaVey came up twice. Which is oh yeah. Under Madison Mogan, you get Anton LaVey as well, right mm -hmm. here. And then for the other girl, her full name, you get Anton LaVey spelt that way. And then I think Anton LaVey spelt the correct way, uh, unfortunately. But his name comes up for both the names. And then That's Harris interesting. The I, I, 33. I, I, I like that analysis. I find it intriguing that there, I saw a number of Zodiac symbols that showed up in there as well. Again, back to this, this uh, astrotheological aspect. Oh, yeah. All right, so I'm done. That was just my weird spiel with numbers. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I like it. Yeah. Now, when you sent me that one, the, the shot the other day that you sent to Ron and I both about the K-Bar. Uh... Yeah, K-Bar, K-Bar. Yeah, I wasn't sure how that was pronounced. Yeah, I thought that was weird. I was like, K-Bar, that equals 33, too. And right. they're like making such a big deal out of that fucking sheet. 
Exactly. And, Take the glove from fucking OJ. I like to, that's exactly how I, I, I compare it to. And it's, I call it the alleged sheath because it seems like they haven't produced a picture, the sheath, the DNA evidence, and they refuse to even do any of that to present that to the Coburger defense. Yeah, that is even something I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think don't they point that out in the new thing when they were asking for like the evidence? I think the judge even finally gave them a date and said you have to have it by now or like, you know, this is Exactly, ridiculous. yeah. But I think they even specified they want the, oh God, the handling of it. And there's a certain phrase to it, like every time that touches someone's hand. The chain of custody. Yes, because I think they're saying if you look at the video footage where you say you found that sheath, it's not in the fucking picture. Exactly. Now that's we want to point. know how you found that sheath where it's not at in the video. That's a right. great point. If I can respond to that and then and then respond yeah. to Ron's previous question real quick. Um, oh yeah, I yeah. Forgot. there is no agreement on the. There's no clear agreement on when the sheath was uh, seized into evidence by whom. Uh, the court, the responding officers all have seemingly different statements in regards to the location and whereabouts of the sheath. They simply just ambiguously, ambiguously, am, very in an ambiguous manner, say we p- found the sheath in the bedroom. And then again, there's some conflicting statements as to precisely where it was found. But you typically would say we found this item at this date and this officer sees that and put it into custody because you need that for the chain of custody. And that does not exist right now in any of the uh, indictments of, of the they were released for the the arresting affidavits and the, uh, the arrest of Coburger. JJ, do we know for sure if they actually have a sheath? <laughs> it's, I like where your head's at, Ron, because that's where I'm at. I don't. I, I'm, I'm gonna, until until I see any sort of you know uh, seemingly objective evidence that there is in fact is a sheath. I'm not willing to believe there is one. Well, wouldn't we? Wouldn't a sheath uh, be included in crime scene photos? Not only would it be included in crime scene photos, you would think if they seize the sheath at the scene on November 13th. The, the Laytal, or I'm sorry, not Laytal, the Whitman County prosecutor and its officers are not filling out affidavits on or about December 30th saying we need to search Coburger's Washington State University apartment looking for a knife and its sheath. Well, if you're looking for a knife and its sheath, why? Because you already found a sheath on November 13th. And even further on that, the prosecutor from Whitman County tells the judge, pay no attention to this DNA evidence that was found on the sheath. So you have the law enforcement saying they're looking for a sheath out of Whitman County. You have the prosecutor out of Whitman County at the date of his arrest in December saying, pay no attention to this alleged DNA evidence off on this, on this knife sheath. So again, it draws into question, is there a knife sheath? Because if that's your primary piece of evidence and you want to get a search warrant from a judge, you're not going to tell that judge, pay no attention to this evidence. You're, there's still probable cause without this evidence was, was that, that prosecutor statement. Now, you go back over to Latal County and considering their actions relative to the sheath, they don't want to release the photographs, the DNA evidence, or any, any information on the chain of custody of the sheath. <laughs> well, is there a sheath? That's where, you know, so that's where I'm at too with it. Well, when he says don't pay any attention to the uh, DNA evidence on the sheath, that would imply that there was DNA evidence on the sheath. Yeah. It would. And, and maybe they don't want them to pay attention to it because the DNA doesn't match anybody that was there or Koberger. That's a good point because there was, according to the most recent filing by Coburger's counsel, in, in the third the third opposition to the state's de- third denial of the discovery documents and discovery evidence, including the sheath, including the DNA evidence, including the genetic genealogy investigation, the because um, the, the state of Ohio, Idaho's official position since March was we're not going to use the sheath, we're not going to use the genetic DNA to convict Coburger. We have a case without it, and Coburger's counsel says. Uh, that's BS. You guys have no case. And we, we question basically whether or not you even have the sheath at this point. 
And, and right. again, that, that, so that, that is what's currently playing out right now. And it seems to be that, you know, it, well, if there was a sheath, it wouldn't be this difficult, right? Number one, if there is a sheath found at a crime scene, they would not touch that sheath until it was mapped out yep. and crime scene photos taken. Absolutely. Then the sheath would have had to been put in an evidence bag without contaminating it in any way. Bagged and tagged. Yep. And they would have had to present the knife sheath as evidence. Absolutely. So and, if if the, well if there's DNA if there's DNA on this knife sheath, in actuality this DNA could could actually take Koberger off the list. Absolutely, and yeah. and that could be the exculpatory evidence that his his That's attorney has referenced. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Because yep. they have referenced exculpatory evidence, and and they're and they're back and forth on this discovery, so that could be part of it. I think I think you're probably you are on target with that because. According to the most recent filing, the third opposition filing of, of the the state denying the discovery, Coburger's counsel says there's three other male DNAs, uh, evidence of three other male DNA samples located in and around the bodies at the crime scene. And so not just not on the bottom floor where the bodies weren't found, right? According to Coburger's counsel in this most recent filing from June 22nd, uh, it was stated there's three other male DNA uh, samples that they law enforcement has not identified and there so. was only one male that was killed and one male in the house at the time correct, correct. or was there a second male according to, i actually think there's a lot of people in and out of that house before during and after okay the, true the correct yeah yeah from some even the witnesses saying that uh that it was definitely a party house and, and drugs right. were sold out of that house but no uh, i'm just saying that night was saying that as well yeah, but that night, I think that, you know, uh, especially in the morning, because it seems like there was folks that cleaned up and everything else, even amongst the college students. So, oh, yeah. Could there be samples that were left then? P- possibly, right? Possibly. But if you're finding DNA evidence in a house and it, the DNA evidence is in and around the victim's bodies, and law enforcement's not identifying these people, right? At least right now, it's not known that they identified them, right? Now, law enforcement's position is, yeah, we identified them, but they weren't suspects and they weren't important, so we're not going to tell you about them. Well, that's not how the due process system works here in our in our nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's those are the games that are currently playing with that DNA. Now, according to law enforcement, in some of their filings recently on the discovery, they claim the state of Idaho claims that they identified all, or they didn't. They didn't. They don't claim that they identified those three suspects. They claim that they they had other suspects. They took DNA evidence from those suspects, and those suspects did not match these other samples. And one of those suspects did not give up his DNA willingly. That's not incriminating. You know, I if someone asked me for my DNA, I would tell them, uh, nope. But apparently they uh, followed one of those sus- alleged suspects around. The state authorities there in Idaho followed an alleged suspect around back in December and got a used cigarette butt to determine that, that wasn't, he didn't match the male DNA they found. Mind you, if they didn't identify the male DNA, then... I don't it kind of it draws into question the nexus point and how they landed on Coburger, which again, that's something, as you pointed out, that the count Coburger's counsel has lambasted in these recent filings in, on June 22nd. It's basically saying, you've got no nexus point with my client. You, he, my, he even goes as far as say, my client doesn't even know the victims. There's no mm-hmm. evidence of any phone calls or social media stuff. These were all some of the false narratives purported you know, by News Nation and other, other outlets like that. So yeah, if you haven't, if you, at the end of the day, if you, they go to trial without identifying those three other male DNA samples, that in and of itself uh, would be exculpatory. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know what, JJ, if, uh, if they don't, if they have a sheath, but they want a warrant to go look for a sheath, that's, that's sketchy there. But, uh, when we're, when we're talking, when we're talking about knives, what about this other individual that's name? And I can't remember his name, but he had an odd last name that was kind of a suspect that they were thinking was in some of the Twitch video footage from the food truck that was hanging around with these girls, you know, before they went home Mm -hmm. and they had searched him out. And I guess his family was very well off. And there was also a dog that a dog or some type of pet that they had found scun near, you know, in that, in that general region where they're thinking that this kid had done that and he was very handy with a knife. And then, yep. and then this kid disappeared. Yeah, you were correct on on those on all those that uh, interpretation of events. The uh, so uh, one of the fraternity uh, brothers of I believe uh, I believe it was the same fraternity as Kaylee Gonzalez's uh, ex boyfriend Jack. I believe this individual's name was also Jack, if I'm not mistaken. And that yes, you're right. He has some familial connections, and I believe on his maternal side to the Idaho Attorney General's office. So there are some some uh, kind of you know connections there from a power political position yeah um seemingly to me the way you know i looked into that i never you know again the interwebs went when went amuck with uh blaming this guy as being the murderer initially you know so kaylee gonzalez's sister is the one who accessed her phone apparently from statements that the gonzalez family has made and she's the one who first identified that they went to the food truck and then the food truck has a video on Twitch, so then she accessed that. And there's again, it's also something that law enforcement organically, seemingly wanted to produce. Now, I think a lot of people want to make a lot of things out of that with with that with that student you're referring to. And he is a hunter, so he is skilled with knives. You could, I remember looking at his social media account back in November, and he did have clearly was a skilled hunter. And clearly, you know, when you're a hunter, as I'm sure Ron, you're you're familiar with, you have to skin that animal before you take him out of the woods. So, yeah, you know, I, I I never have, but I have a nephew. That can skin a bear in no time. There you go. See? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. It is it is a skill set. If you're a hunter, you have to yep. you have to learn that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there there is some circumstantial evidence, I think, that, that caused people to to be concerned about him as being a suspect. I never looked I looked at the guy's body language on the Twitch video. I never saw anything nefarious out of it. You know, I think I believe statements later he made a police where he was just trying to help them get home safely, I believe, or something in that regard. Now, a later video was released from that corner club bar that I was referring to earlier where Gonsalves and Mogan had uh, clearly had some face-to-face interactions. They looked friendly by all appearances of their still shot images that were released at that corner club bar with Kaylee Gonsalves' ex-boyfriend, Jack. Now, that other the other fellow was there at the bar with him, and he walked with those girls to the to the food truck, and he a uh, video surveillance video from that walk was later released by an anonymous party and it showed those girls walking very friendly with that guy and seemingly he was just helping them you know get get somewhere safely now there was a lot to be made of conversations that were had during that surveillance footage because i believe it was uh madison mogan had made a a statement to uh, that guy that uh, she had told this other fellow, another another one of the Greek students there, another one of the fraternity brothers, saying that he she had told him everything. You know that was overheard on the surveillance footage. I think there was a lot there was a lot of conclusions drawn from that. I didn't try not to draw any conclusions, but it is grounds for further inquiry because, you know, if they're saying statements that even seem like somebody may be out to get them, 
moments before you know, hour, hour and a half before they're apparently murdered, that seems to be something that law enforcement should look further into. I have somebody in the chat saying that his name is uh, Jack Showalter. And there you he go. said they are going to get you. There, yep. I mean, yeah, that's what I hear on the video, too. They're going to get you. Something, something that's called Adam, and Adam is Jack D's roommate. Yep. Adam, yep. So, so now you're saying, though, that they have footage of the same night of them at least talking or this guy being there? Yep. Mm -hmm. So, like, isn't that even weird, though, if you think about it? Like, now I don't know what time that – do you know what time the footage is supposed to be at where they're getting this food? Yeah, I mean uh, – well, yeah, it's about 10 till, uh, 10 or about uh, 145 or so. It was right, right prior to them taking a private car ride service to get back to their house, which I think dropped them off at 145, so immediately preceding that. And then an hour later, you got – the ex-boyfriend who's friends with that dude blowing yep. both their phones up. Exactly. So that's where I find interesting. You just nailed it, Nick. So if, if, if she told Adam everything and then this show Walter fellas saying, well, they're going to get you or something and something into that regard. Cause there is probably some interpretation of the audio is not fantastic, but that is what I hear on it as well. I'm not saying that is what's said, but that is what I hear. You know? And so, yeah, you've, you brought up the elements right there. So Adam clearly knows Jack D the, the ex-boyfriend of Kaylee Gonzalez. And again, I tend to think, all all data and, and details and facts seem to point that this crime occurred that weekend because Kaylee Gonzalez was in, back in town. I was, yeah, I was going to mention that too. I, I did, I forget about that. And like, that is actually, I do think that's an important thing to take into mind. She had already left that place and just right. happened to be back. Yep. Like so that it, could be time. It serves for, a, you know, it's a, it almost points to a crime of opportunity, the opportunity that she was back in town. So you're saying that uh, the murders may have been planned out prior Definitely to this? Definitely premeditated, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and, and they were waiting for her to come back into town to kill her? Absolutely. Now, to add some in, some more intrigue to that statement, Ron, one thing I looked at back in the fall was um, the Google searches for these names of these victims prior to, their, prior to the murders. So for the weeks preceding the murders, um, so roughly October 15th to November 12th, let's call it. There is a significant amount of Google searches for these victims' names, with the exception of the surviving roommate, Dylan Mortensen. Her, her name was not being Googled. And I find the areas in which these, these Google searches were occurring, they don't tell you the exact city and location. It, gets, it comes up in a region. But I find it very interesting, the regions of Nevada and the state of Washington that these Google searches were occurring from in the weeks preceding the the murders and they were searching these girls names so if you were going to premed if it was a premeditated crime which this one obviously has all the hallmarks of a premeditated you know crime it, you're going to stalk these people through the internet and uh -huh. you're going to google search their name if you don't know their social media to look up what social medias they have and if you have numerous someone's doing that that would then substantiate why there are numerous uh, uh, a large volume of google searches occurring in more than one location i think the top three locations if i remember correctly off the top of my head were Spokane area, um, Spokane, Washington, Boise, Idaho, and in and around the location where, uh, where surviving roommate Bethany Funk comes from in Nevada. Okay, so that's a very interesting thing, JJ. If there was, if there were Google searches for the three, for the three girls, right? Mm -hmm. Was were were there Google searches for the one guy? Ooh, that's a good question. Off the top of my head, I don't want to give you the wrong answer on that because I don't remember the. I, I do re recall the uh, the female, um, the occupants of the home. 
even Bethany Funk seemed to have Google searches for her name, and she's a surviving roommate. And the one that didn't was Dylan Mortensen, and she's from Boise, which again was one of the locations. I believe that was the number one location for a number of these Google searches. Interesting. Boise region. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that means somebody's checking them out and somebody's lining it up for sure, which is really sloppy if you're using Google to do a search for something like that. Yeah. Criminals aren't known to be smart, Ron. You know what I mean? Like, well, they, they could they could use VPNs, right? And they could right. also get rid of that stuff. And again, if if it's if it's some sort of uh, hit or uh, something in, along those regards, as far as what, what went down here on November 13th and that led to the murder of these these young college students. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they knew there was going to be no investigation. Or they knew they weren't going to get caught. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, there's plenty of criminals that use Google for searches that know how to get rid of the search. Right. Or, or who knows, they could have been using a random laptop or a computer somewhere else. You can go to a public library. You need right to trace somebody in a public library going to use a free computer and not having to log in. I think you just use a, like a guest pass or something from the library. Okay, but there's still going to be an IP address. Did they look into the IP address, the actual address, to see where this computer that was logged on to Google was located? Do we I know haven't that? seen it. I haven't seen any indication from any of the court filings from the state of Idaho that would imply that they even cared to look at these details. Okay, well, that would be real simple. Hmm. Get, get the IP address, go to the location, see where the person actually was sitting and using this device. Mm-hmm. And then ask for in, ask for any surveillance cameras in that neighborhood. Look yeah. at the surveillance cameras around the time that the Google searches were were completed, and you might be able to get some type of surveillance footage of the person that was doing the actual searches. Hundred percent, I'm right there with you. Yep. Yeah. And I just I've seen no indication that any sort of investigatory line was taken along those lines. And again, just back to what they have produced, the state of Idaho and these filings. They have cell phones that they uh, have unidentified numbers and owners of those numbers that they've uh, conducted search warrants on. They have uh, the, the state of Idaho. They, they did search warrants for bank accounts, numerous bank accounts that to date, no one has identified the owner of these bank accounts or why the state of Idaho is, you know, subpoenaing the records to search them. So, yeah, I think, I think you may bring up some good points and, uh, it seems like it to me, it just seems like it was a non-issue. It was a non-starter for the investigation. The investigation was Brian Koberger did it. You know, again, it just, yeah, he was, he's the focal like point. Yeah. He was the focal point of this investigation from the get go. If not before the murders were even committed. I, I'm glad you said it. Cause I, again, if you're going to, if you're going to run an operation, if you're going to run a hit from any sort of organized criminal perspective, you're going to want your fall guy identified in advance. Right. And you're going to yep. want to continue to continuing to, to bend in, in the narrative and the investigation to that to that individual, not necessarily overtly and immediately because that draws into too many too many uh, questions and you know draws the attention of people, but to do it slowly and behind the scenes and under some veil of confidentiality, which is precisely what's occurred here. And if I can just share with you a couple statements, a couple quote quick quotes from the recent filing on June twenty second, it speaks to that, right? So. Koberger's counsel on the June 22nd motion in opposition to the state still denying discovery, right? Still violating Koberger's rights to due process. Uh, the, the attorney wrote, no matter what came first, the car or the genetic genealogy, the investigation has provided precious little. I think that summarizes, that speaks volumes. It's a brief sentence. It's not disrespectful necessarily to the to the state, even though I, I, I could never, if I was in their position, it would be a lot, <laughs> it would be a lot worse of a statement for me, you know, but 
another one is there's no connection between Brian Koberger and the victims flat out said that in the filing. Right. So, you know, yeah. that I think again, that speaks volumes, right? Cause if you, and, and that speaks even more once I read this last one here, there is no explanation for the total lack of DNA evidence of the victim and of the victims in Koberger's apartment, his office, his parents' home or his vehicle. Right. So they're saying, look, if you got this knife sheath and it has this touch DNA on a button, why is there no other DNA evidence anywhere else? Right. And I'm sorry, there's one more. In essence, through the lack of disclosure, the lack of disclosure of discovery, and their motion to hide the genetic genealogy investigation, again, the state says that's not important now. The state is hiding their entire case. That was the sum total of what the filing was on June 22nd. And that's accurate. The state is hiding their entire case. So, Again, it, it seems, I think all of those statements to me, in my mind, the one thing it points to is Koberger was the guy from day one, or at least possibly, I think probably before, you're right. But at least he was the guy early on in the investigation and there was no other inquiry anywhere else. You know, what's really mind boggling to me is I am not an investigator. Although I've- Could have shocked me, Ron. You do a lot. You, I've, you uh, well, questions. well, in my previous life, uh, they like to have me around for my critical thinking skills like that. There you go. So, uh, so well, but if I, if I'm I may saying, interject, I, it sounds like you investigate the uh, problems with automobiles and are able to diagnose those issues. So, in a sense, you, well, you do that, kind of that too, that too. But in my previous life, it was mind, in, yeah. investigating, uh, okay, who's doing what? Why are they doing it? Who's working with them? Yeah. We'll okay. get into we'll get into it more some other day off the air. <laughs> but uh, but, but point is point is I'm not an investigator, and 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 I'm just a you know I'm just a garage guy that works on cars, right? Mm-hmm. But but uh, it would make sense to to do the IP address search. No, oh, absolutely. Like like you, so, so if they, forty-eight, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's not yeah, but and why that's not even from TV. You know, that's just common sense. Yeah. But no, you know I what? You. Uh, JJ, I got a question on the actual DNA evidence that they allegedly do have on Kohlberger, right? <laughs> yep. Hit me. Did they say it was such a minute amount of evidence in that there's a theory that the FBI actually manufactured or did some manipulation to this whatever DNA evidence mm-hmm. that they had that was extremely minute? Yep. To make it somehow, to some degree, match Koberger, when in fact it may not have matched him at all. Because when you're talking about DNA evidence, right, there's none left on the scene other than allegedly on the knife sheath that we don't even know if actually exists or not. And none, none associated with Koberger in any way at the scene or in any of his personal effects. Yep. His car, yep. his clothes, his apartment, yep. his, his, his office at work, his classrooms at work. No DNA evidence there None. whatsoever. Now I've now I've listened to some other people talk about this, and they say, "Well, that's not really that big of a deal." I disagree. It's a huge deal. It's the huge hugest yeah. deal, because they were even talking about there was no footprints left at the scene. Of course, yep. you know, in part one we talked about the possibility of there being a cleanup crew, right? Well, the evidence supports that. If you have, yeah. if you find a latent shoe print, which is a shoe print that is developed through putting some chemicals on the floor and dropping some powder on it, well, it implies that that floor had been cleaned up. Yeah, was whoever was whoever committed this? Were they walking around with those surgical footies on? Right. I mean, it's totally plausible. It it, it could happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, it would it would imply that uh, 
there was you know a greater degree of uh, forethought in that and if Koberger was walking around with these booties on his the plastic booties on his shoes like where did they go you mm-hmm. know why didn't why did why is there no evidence outside the home of blood trails to a car or anything like that well just to give the listeners a uh, visual in one of the closing scenes in the movie the departed <laughs> Good movie. mark mark Wahlberg's character who was a police a uh, boston police officer was dressed all in surgical he had gloves on and he had those those footies on yep. and he waited for matt damon's character to open up the door and he took him out yep and he just great. calmly walked out great scene <laughs> Yeah, right. who's who's to say that that's, this wasn't possibly a similar scenario? So I'm saying, like, they, they, if people are actually, like, know what they're doing, have no fear of the situation, and just go in and, like, be just basically, like, surgical. Mm-hmm. Just go in and do what you do. Like, it could easily just, like, it, it could have been such a different scenario than what we think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Two people that just walked in and just jacked two people real quick and walked out. Like, they just did nothing. Okay, so this was not a random... Out of rage, out of jealousy, out of whatever fixation an individual had with these with these ladies. Nope. And in didn't fact, law enforcement said that from day one, right? They said it was an isolated, targeted attack. Just didn't come across himself to go, you know what? I'm going to go in, uh, over to that place on King Road. I'm going to kill everybody in the house. Right. Because if they're in that frame of mind, they're going to make a mistake. They're going to leave evidence. Because they're not in their own mind. Yeah, I mean, I, trust me. I mean, based upon my, at least on my experience as a you know law enforcement officer for years in the U.S. Air Force, military police for you know twenty years, um, and just my training. I have a vast amount of training in uh, close quarters combat, SWAT operations, etc. I was a SWAT team leader at the age of nineteen in the Air Force, so I have you know, I trained to you know operate with precision and shoot, move, and communicate scenarios and. I'm going to tell you right now that you would have to be a professional on some next level to go into a home like that, even one, two, and regardless of how many people actually committed this crime, to go in there, not leave a shred of evidence. Yeah, and let me and let me let me add something to that. If this was a professional hit, and we're going to get into possibly some reasons why we think that it might be. Absolutely. The hitmen are not going to waste their time planting evidence because they know they're not going to get caught. Right. They're just, they're, so, so this brings in the whole knife sheath thing again. They are not going to take the time, oh, let's plant this to get them off our track. There's not going to be any track that leads to these guys. It's just not going to happen. Because they're right? going to walk in just like that dude did. Yeah, and, and if they avoided... Out and that's it. If they avoided any type of getting caught on camera, that just alludes to the fact that they are professionals if they stake this place out, if they stalked these girls and knew their whereabouts at any given time or knew when they were going to be back at this apartment, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to know where every single surveillance camera is and they're going to avoid them or they're going to use evasive tactics to avoid showing up on any type of camera, especially a ring door camera. You're spot on, Ron. And again, there's a lot of questions about these surveillance images and surveillance footage of the, of the alleged vehicle. So in the most recent June 22nd filing from Koberger's counsel, they call out law enforcement by saying, you haven't produced any of these images. You haven't produced how this em- how these were collected, you know, the searches that were conducted in which to achieve these surveillance uh, videos. Uh, we They draw into the, the uh, Koberger's counsel, draws into question whether or not it's even a white Hyundai Elantra in the image that they have shown mm-hmm. and provided to, to his counsel. 
and they 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 even argue the coverage council argues the one primary video footage they're using is a vehicle that is driving in the wrong direction at the wrong time on the wrong road to fit the actual timeline that police are trying to convict Coburger under. So yeah. And we talked about that briefly in part one, that, that whether, whether or not it was, you know, Coburger's car or not, I can tell you right now that every little four door white sedan, I don't care if it's domestic made or foreign made, they all look the same in some type of nighttime blurry surveillance cameras. These cars are not distinguishable from each other. Absolutely. You really got to know cars, and I know cars. <laughs> right. And and I'm looking at that video, and I'm like, okay, that could be an Elantra, could be an Optima, right. could be could be a Malibu, could be sure. could be a Corolla. Well, there's no way of knowing for sure because these cars are all lookalike cars, and the fact that this car was not even going in the right direction, not even in the same area, right, but it was blurry enough that they used this to their advantage, like the blurry foot, uh, Bigfoot photos. Exactly. Oh, that's Bigfoot <laughs> to say, okay, well, this guy's driving a white Elantra. So we need to get some type of surveillance somewheres that shows some type of white, little white sedan so that we can use that to back up our, you know, whatever our case is, even to go get a warrant. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure to get a warrant, they brought that into play. I have no doubt they use it for probable yeah. cause. Yeah. Okay. So listen, what about this real quick before we get on to the next thing? Well, can I can well, I add a book in on your point? Oh, there? sure. Just real quick. Sure, go ahead. So Nick brought it up earlier. So one of the things I found strangest, this one infamous image of this vehicle that is driving the wrong direction on the wrong road type of business was released by a gas station, a surveillance footage of a gas station manager who was not interviewed by police, who saw the police press conference on December 7th and said, well, I'll go look on my footage because we have a run along a, the, their gas station was on a main thoroughfare of town, in and out of town. And again, that one's heading out of town. But the police responded by going to that gas station and taking their gas pumps. The vehicle in the footage never even stopped at the gas station. Why would you be taking their gas pump? It was almost like a childish retribution. Like, hey, don't you blow up our you know mal- malfeasant uh, investigation here, and we're going to go ahead and punish you now for even bringing this stuff to light and ruining our storyline. Because so, that seems like kind of what occurred there. And what reasoning would there have been to take the gas pumps? Great question. Were they thinking that Koberger, after he killed all these guys, stopped by and got, you know, some, some uh, you know, a Snickers bar, maybe a monster drink, and got a few gallons of gas after? Well, the- and they the, think they're going to get DNA off the gas pumps? Come on. Exactly. So, the and, and again, in the video, the video footage, the vehicle doesn't stop at the gas pumps. So why would you go take the gas pump, right? And I'll, I'll even one more one more to add a quick book into the whole vehicle situation. The uh, I believe I sent both of you gentlemen the uh, picture of uh, the police picking up a coat about 400 meters. It was located about 400 meters uh, in front of the the 1122 King Street home. Um, and, and their early on investigation, it was some media footage of the the investigators. They found a coat near a fire hydrant. Right. Well, the coat seems to have a very distinct quality to the left arm, which is this white tag, and that's the same oversized clearly a male's coat that madison victim madison mogan was wearing at the food truck and at the corner club bar surveillance imagery right and it's fairly distinguishable by this white tag on the left arm and that's the same white tag you see on this coat that the police are picking up after the murders well directly in front of that fire hydrant on the night of the murders and around 3 a.m there was two non-uniformed moscow pd officers sitting in an, in an unmarked silver 
sedan that looks eerily similar to a white to a to an Elantra sitting right there at that fire hydrant, right? And this was kind of infamously seen across the known band uh, band field, not actually band field, but band field, which is the uh, vacant uh, field that sits adjacent to the uh, Greek row there on the edge of campus, right right near the murder scene. And they the cops had chased these uh, underage. Uh, college students for inside them for public intoxication or underage consumption so you know how is that the is that the vehicle that they're seeing in the footage is it the the, the law enforcement moscow pd's unmarked car with these guys that are stopping drunk college students and it, that's one question question number two in that situation is how does that if that is madison bogan's coat the male it was a male's coat she was wearing i've never seen any any identification of the male that whose coat was the, who owned that coat um but how does it get four, roughly three or 400 meters away from the home that she was dropped off at the front door of and land at the same spot where a, a video footage patrol cameras show that law enforcement was sitting right there at that site. So if she's dead at 4 a.m., she got home at 156. How did that coat get to a location where the law enforcement was already sitting right there? Yeah, well, I, I have I have like a half ass answer to that. What, what do you got? OK, so say she's wearing this coat when she gets in this ride sharing car mm -hmm. say she's in this ride sharing car and she's being rude to the driver. We don't know. Have they even talked to the ride share car operator? They allegedly. Yes. And they cleared him early on. And apparently the ring doorbell camera on the 1122 King street house caught Kaylee and Madison entering back into the home that morning around 156. Cause initially the police were saying it was 145. I believe, I believe there was a, there was a, there was a, uh, there was some disagreement on time. The police said one time, and then the uh, Gonzalez sister um, looked on her phone and, and the ring doorbell camera and determined it was another time, I believe nine minutes later. So I think it was 145 or 11 minutes later, 145 to 156. But that ring doorbell camera should show whether or not she was wearing that coat on the way in. Okay. So that's a good point to make because that would kind of go against my theory. Mm -hmm. You're thinking maybe she threw it, threw it out, threw it out the window or something. She either threw it out on the way there. Now, was this was this location of this fire hydrant on the way, or was this the road. or was it going away? It would have been. They would have. They would have kind of driven past it on the opposite side of the road from where the the fire hydrant was on the way back to the house. Because here's a couple scenarios. She should have could have had the coat in there, and she's like, you know what? Screw this coat. Boom, threw yeah. it out the window. Or she may have left it in the vehicle probably you know possibly could have been rude to the driver i know if i was the driver <laughs> and i found your personal belongings that you left in the car i'd be screw them i'd throw them right out the window never saw them you know sure. what i'm saying i mean those it's are just possible. a couple of scenarios that's a possibility but the coat thing is interesting and it's also interesting how this police vehicle was parked in this same location where this coat was discovered exactly now, and it's a silver sedan that looks eerily similar to an elantra Silver and white at night under lights looks very similar, mm -hmm. especially if the lights are yellow tinted. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell the difference, right? Absolutely. So I have another vehicle question. Let's go. What do, what we, what do we know about the luxury black SUV that was seen at the scene <laughs> leading up to that? Because who usually operates luxury black SUVs? Drug dealers. Drug dealers or... Black op people. Mm. Yeah, certainly possible. I, and uh, I, I think that's the most intriguing part I found about Anon Harsh's statements because he was the one who said he saw that vehicle there. Oh, and that was Harsh that said that? That was Harsh that said that, yep. Okay. He, he, he was a, uh, a chef. As you said, he, he goes by Chef Dizzy on his social medias. Yeah. 
And he came, he returned back home late at night after closing down the restaurant and saw that vehicle sitting there. And, you know, he seemed to be a car guy and kind of, you know, into that kind of thing. And, and that's why he took note of it. Cause he thought it was a fancy looking car. And I think that's great. That's a great question. Cause I don't, from everything I can gather and all, and all the law enforcement documents released, they, there was no inquiry into the whereabouts or ownership of that vehicle. All right, JJ, let me ask you this because you might know more about his statement than I do. Did he say that it was a larger SUV or a smaller luxury SUV, say like an Audi Q series or yep. a Porsche Cayenne or, exactly. uh, you know, even like a Chevy Equinox or something, a Nissan Rogue? No, I think something that size. Yeah, you're, you nailed it. It's like a mid sized luxury SUV. SUV, I believe he referenced it as a uh, uh, BMW with, uh, he thought it was BMW. He thought it had, it had he, he said it had tinted windows and he stated it had uh, luxury rims, kind of nicer. Yeah, some, so some sort of so it could, could have been like a, uh, could have been like an X5 then. And he all, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. kind of what yeah. I was thinking. Yep. The, the midsize yeah. kind of BMW SUVs. Yeah. Yeah. He also mentioned it had out of state plates. He, he thought it was Utah or um, maybe Arizona or like, uh, you know, in a state with mountains in it. I'll, I'll even go you one further and say Montana, right? Doesn't Colorado, doesn't Colorado doesn't Colorado also have yep. mountains on their license plates? Yeah, so there's a lot of yep. those states around that area do have mountains on their license plates. So he said it was an out-of-state plate in his statements, and if that is true, I mean, all you know, let's say let's say this is part of a larger, you know, Greek and sorority kind of drug drug trafficking operation network. I find it interesting that they were the University of Idaho was hosting a uh, an out uh, woodsman or outdoors sports uh, league. Uh, tournament that weekend amongst the conference the you know their uh, i think it's mountain west conference i believe so in theory there was a lot of there was a lot of college students in town that weekend in moscow idaho that were very skilled in uh, you know all the you know you y'all familiar what i'm talking about with the outdoorsmen and uh like woodsman series kind of sporting competitions where they they use the axes and, yes, the, yes, and yes. the saws and and possibly even knives mm-hmm. it's just wild yeah nice. throwing the axes throwing the knives yeah, yeah sure so, yeah so, like, let, let's say, for example, you're a student at, uh, what is that, Montana State in, in uh, Missoula, Montana, or, or even uh, U of M or Montana State, M- Missoula or Bozeman, right? Let's say you don't, you know, you're just going to drive over to Moscow for that tournament, right? Let's say you're a Greek student, you know, part of a fraternity, you know, or whatnot, and you're also involved in this this potential drug trafficking op- network operation amongst these, these uh, you know, these organizations. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think it's I think it's certainly grounds for further inquiry because you know if you're seeing a fancy SUV like that maybe that was a college student it may, might not be a drug dealer right maybe you know maybe they are dealing drugs I'm just saying maybe it's not like a local drug dealer right maybe it's a college student who's in town for this tournament who happens to just be very skilled in knives yeah yeah you know the other oh yeah okay well there you go good angle right there uh, in my opinion not sounding elitist but a, a BMW X5. Uh, BMW X5 to me isn't really that great of a car. Right. So uh, that would be something that you would buy for your kid. <laughs> that's that's nothing. That's nothing that I would like myself. Right. If, that's if where my I head was, was at. Yeah. 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 And this yeah, is coming that, so from the could... guy. The guy with the seventy thousand dollar pickup truck. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so, so then you agree? You could see maybe there was some sort of fraternity student who. Maybe, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah maybe was from one of these other universities in town that weekend for the, the woodsman sports. Yeah. Yeah. There was something I want to touch upon with uh 
with uh, this whole drug aspect um because i have heard like a lot of different stories about that um there's like a cute a, a few things that i was going to ask you guys maybe if you've heard of it there's any validity to it one thing i do want to just mention real quick there was somebody in the chat who was telling a story that i have heard um and it, they mentioned a name that i actually remember seeing before so it just this is really interesting to me it could be nothing have you heard of like the whole thing where um i think one of them flushed drugs down the toilet and supposedly like that's why they might have had a problem with somebody it was like a fuck ton of drugs have you heard of like that story at all i think that's those are statements that they're running drugs through the no, house yeah. yeah, they were. I found it. They were running drugs through the house. They were after Maddie because she flushed it. That's why Kaylee moved out early. And then the the same person, uh, love MJ two in the chat. He says, uh, and then he mentioned something about uh, somebody named Quinn. I'm sorry. Okay. Should, yep. Yeah. Where I think uh, that the weird thing is what he was saying is I think that one of the drug dealers or somebody with the name Quinn they were tied to. Yeah, can, Queen does come up under Madison's name in Gematria. I did notice that earlier, but didn't mention it because he was like, yeah. "Why, you know, Quinn?" But that 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 name even matches her name. Interesting. Now, yeah, I, can, I, can, I can respond to some of those points. Those are definitely amongst the rumor mill. I feel like a lot of the flushing of the drugs came from statements made by that fraternity student who was a brother of the the overdose death fraternity president from back in March of this year. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Real quick, drug ring run by. Kopeka, Demetrius, Emma, Dylan, and her boyfriend, Quinn, 275 grand's worth. So that's where I saw the Quinn and I was like, wait, was you guys were talking? I was reading and I was like, wait, I saw Quinn on there. I hate to like interrupt for that like weird coincidental. No, thing. no, no. Okay. Was, I, I can't remember some of those that's names. That's I'm glad you brought them up. JJ, JJ, hold on. Uh, love M MJ too, if you're still in the chats. Who was Constantine? Do we know who this Constantine character is? I know who Quinn is, and I know who the rest of the characters. I don't know who Constantine. The Demetrius. Yeah, so he's the yeah. drug dealer that was responsible for the murder or the overdose death of the uh, fraternity president back in March. University okay. of Iowa fraternity president. Okay, yeah. Okay. And Emma's his girlfriend slash seemingly maybe he's her pimp. It's, it's strikingly there's a relationship there that that, that that screams pimp. He's he's in his thirties. She's twenty one or twenty two maybe, and uh, she's of the social that Emma is of the social circle of the victims interesting so they live in moscow however for whatever reason and i can i can probably provide some speculation but for whatever reason they were up in, they were all up in seattle and this kid overdosed in seattle and then he ended up dying in a hotel room or apartment about an hour and a half east of seattle so okay. he went to the er got out and then went to this went to they apparently traveled with these same two people and then died later possibly have more drugs who knows i don't think it was ever never brought into question yet but they were charged demetrius and emma were, were arrested and in charge with with the uh s supplying of the drugs and the uh and the death of that of that student okay so so mj2 just said that constantine is the guy that owned the mad greek restaurant that the girls worked at yeah so i mean a lot of there there has been a lot of rumor mills around some of those things i, I have yet to see anything you know with great validity that that head guy has anything to do with anything but i think yeah. the the bigger the bigger thing that seems to be at least we can point to his fact at this time right is the I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know rule it out it's certainly possible but you know if we're gonna try to delineate between rumor mill and and fact this Demetrius yeah. character and Emma absolutely drug Demetrius is absolutely a drug dealer 
They've absolutely been supplying to clearly these these Greek students, the, the fraternities and sororities of University of Idaho. The fraternity president of one of these fraternities there died of a drug overdose just in March. And I think that one like seven day span in March seems like such an integral tipping point in this entire case. His that was that kid's death. It was um the uh and the subject. Are red. you talking this last March? Yeah, March twenty twenty three. March twenty twenty three. Oh, so after the fact. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so okay. this all occurred in around March 20th to about, or I think about 20th to 26th of 2023. So okay. the overdose death of the University of Idaho uh, fraternity president, one of the fraternities there, pre- kid who was a president, I believe he was a junior, he, he overdosed is in Seattle again. So, and this is, I think that's an important point because, for example, the local regional drug task force, which all of the... the all of the prosecutors, all of the police chiefs, all of the people integral in this investigation comprise the board of that regional drug task force, right? So they're already going to know about all these drug activities because they're running the task force. Now, it, this is interesting because I can't find this case and it seemingly has been sealed. But last, was it last year or two years ago? I think it was a press release from 2021. And it was, and it stated that that task force had busted one of the Washington State University fraternities for the largest xanax uh or largest uh, pill stamping operation in the state of washington history they, the the fraternity was stamping their own pill they had a pill stamper you know making their own pills xanax and they were distributing it all the way to seattle so that shows you a drug pipeline network of the distribution from these from these uh fraternity greek students that are of the two universities in all the way to seattle so then fast forward march 2023 this fraternity college, uh, president from moscow uh, university of idaho he dies of a drug overdose and this, the initial drug overdose that was in Seattle. Then they picked him up from the hospital, drove him some, to another location. And he later died at that second location. And it's unknown if he did more drugs or it was somehow derivative of the first drug overdose. And that's again, how Demetrius, the drug dealer who I believe is, he might be 33, Nick, he might be 33 years old. He's definitely in his thirties. Oh. <laughs> and uh, Emma, I believe I can't recall her last name at the moment, but yeah, she so Emma's in the, the social circle of the victims. You know, and again, there seems to be a you know, prostitution and pimp kind of relationship with the uh, between Demetrius and, and Emma. Um, and then again, it seems to indicate not only there's this larger drug trafficking operation, drug use operation, and it seems to go all the way over to a pipeline that may or may not reach as far as Seattle, if not if not further. I I can't hear you, Ron. Oh yeah, sorry. yeah. He muted himself. Sorry about that. No, no worries. I was uh, I was checking to see if I if something wrong with my my stuff. Okay, yeah. So let me start over. Uh, I did see there was some reports uh, from the Idaho Drug Task Force that they are admitting that ninety percent of the drugs that come into the Moscow area are coming from Salt Lake City. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I've yeah, missed Salt that. Lake, Salt I'd Lakes, like to read that. Yeah, Salt Lake City is the actual hub for the drugs, and they're driven directly from there up to uh Lataw county and mm-hmm. uh what's the what's the uh what's the county moscow's Wait, in oh yeah no Lataw county that's where moscow is and then okay, you have Lataw county, yeah. county washington next door yeah yeah so uh so they know that yep. they know these drugs are coming out of there and a lot of people are saying well you know this road that comes out of moscow uh goes you know you could drive to stay right on that road and it'll take you right to california like mm-hmm. i don't think i don't think they're going to take the time to drive unless it's in a like tractor trailer the right. amount of drugs that's going to be profitable to go, you know, all the way from California to Moscow when they can get larger amounts of drugs closer, which is in Salt Lake City. 
Well, that's that's a, that's an interesting point. So I haven't read that report, but I have read the uh, report from the Regional Drug Task Force, which includes the folks over there in Lantau County, but also includes Whitman County in Washington, Nez Perce County. You know, I think the four or five surrounding counties. I have read some of their reports, and you know, again, the one thing I find most intriguing was one of them was the largest pill stamping operation in Washington state history was being run out of a fraternity sure. on Washington state university campus. Additionally, there was one of the sororities on Washington state campus in 2017 was trafficking in cocaine. So there's another incident. So one, one, obviously, I mean, they're getting the materials for the Xanax pill stamping operation from somewhere, but they're, they're using that as a, as a manufacturing and distribution point, clearly now with the cocaine, that report from, uh, from the incident I'm re- referring to, they claimed it came in from up north in Idaho, up through um, Coeur d'Alene, from the Canadian border down through Coeur d'Alene mm-hmm. and down just along the western edge there uh, of Idaho. And I, th- I find that intriguing because if you start following that drug trafficking channel up towards the northern Idaho, you're going to find yourself in and around Sandpoint, Idaho, which is home to the Aryan Nation and a, uh, a, a Nazi uh a group known that was known as the order and the order is documented to in years past to be involved in murder and drugs and all sorts of stuff for example they murdered a denver area newsman uh, back in the mid 80s and that was turned into an oliver stone film um of which i can't recall the name of at the moment yeah so, you know you know it, it's, it's kind of funny it, it's kind of funny uh you know any of them border town it's like that in upstate new york as well Mm-hmm. Uh, upstate New York, where you got Montreal and stuff right over the border, that's uh, that's a big drug alleyway there. And they actually they actually smuggle the drugs through the woods on snowmobile trails and yep. four four wheeler trails. They don't do it on the road. Yep. So, Same goes for Vermont. Same with Vermont. That's how they get yep. into Burlington. My area of Vermont's like Burlington. I'm just 20 miles east of yep. Burlington and Huntington, yep. Vermont. That's yep. my my region where I grew up. Yep. Same thing. Same okay, thing. So, yep. So, JJ, you know that when you're in northern Vermont and you go up through Milton, I think Milton is one of the last towns before you hit the Canadian border. Yep. And then when you cross in the Canadian border, you look around, it's all woods and farmland. Absolutely. So there's plenty of places you can four-wheel or take a razor with and a little trail and do, and do everything you need to do. You don't even yeah. have to take the highway. Absolutely. So, I don't I don't know specifically the Idaho-Canadian border, but I do know the Montana-Canadian border because I was stationed in Montana for years in the Air Force, and it's the same environment up there. You have, you know, you have more cattle than you do people yeah you know something just in my opinion uh only be only because of so many other drugs that are so much worse now you know i i don't even view coke as being like a hard drug anymore i mean i i mean i guess i guess you i guess you could say it is it is you know it's it's right. worse than it's worse than pot right but but who even thinks of pot being a drug now nobody oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. so correct. so in 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 that whole consensus is starting to take over for coke also because it's, yep. it's not it's not these two items that are really causing people to go batshit crazy. What's causing no, but, people to go crazy is the heroin and the synthetic heroin, which is the fentanyl. And the fentanyl is the most deadly of all of them. The problem is, meh. is that they're spiking the coke with fentanyl. They're spiking, the, they're spiking the marijuana with fentanyl. Yep. So now that becomes dangerous. And I believe that's how that student, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that was what I wanted to interject there. Yeah. I believe that's how that fraternity president from Moscow, Idaho, University of Idaho, I believe that's how he overdosed back in March was reported. It was fentanyl laced cocaine, I believe. Yeah. 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 Actually a friend of mine went down that way too. Yep. And that is, it is a growing, it is a growing, uh, you know, trend. Yeah. Just a hot dose. That's all it was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Kind of sad, but you know, I mean, let's, uh, I definitely think that there's a there's a narcotic uh, element to this crime. 
I, it seems I really do. I really do. Because this is when people will just get crazy. If you're dealing with cartel members. Absolutely. Car- cartel members don't care who they kill. Like, like they, they don't care. So, so when I, when I was watching a video about the Idaho four, it kind of brought me into another video about the Goshen massacre what, up in California. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was two rival gangs. They, some members of each gang happened to be living in the same town. And a couple of cartel members went over to this house. They killed everybody in the house. They killed an 18 year old girl and her baby. That was maybe a year old. Mm-hmm. So point is, they don't care who they kill, right? Right. Now, now let's, uh, if we have time, you know, uh, I'd l- kind of like to go a little bit deeper into the actual uh, logistics of it all and, and the, uh, you know, the nitty gritty about about the two moms and their drug charges. Yeah, I, I got I got time. I'd love to go over that. And I'd also kind of dive into the conspiracy theory deep end, if you will, and, and go over some of the weirder elements that I think may be going on here That's relative right, yeah. to the drug trafficking and money laundering operations and yeah. relative to the malfeasance of the investigation because you as as uh, Nick briefly brought up before with with an individual by the name of Brent Kopaka now I've seen nothing I've I've obviously seen rumors but I've seen nothing of fact that would substantiate this man was connected to drug trafficking however he is the individual that was involved in the December 15th 2022 SWAT and hostage situation on WSU campus now he's an intriguing individual and he has connections in, directly into the the investigators involved in this murder investigation. And didn't they take him out? That's the story. And there's been no, they refuse to release any documents. I've listened to the, uh, the radio, uh, the, the radio transmissions of the, the Republic. And, you know, and again, I have history in SWAT and uh, environments and situations. And you're not, you know, one thing I noticed on there was, uh, yeah, people complaining about spilling coffee and someone else to bring someone their coffee during the middle of this allegedly tense hostage situation when I hear the radio transmissions, nothing to me speaks of it to be legitimate, but yeah, the official story goes, he held his two roommates hostage in this apartment, not too far from Coburger's building. And, uh, the, uh, there's been really no speak of these two female roommates that were allegedly there, but they were apparently at some point extracted. The building was vacated and this individual, Brent Copaco engaged in a firefight with Washington, with the, with the, uh, local PD over there and, uh, was taken out. Correct. Now, did that happen? I again back to things like the knife sheath. Until they can start substantiating these claims, I I'm not willing to believe them. Yeah, and we and uh, and if they did take this uh, Kopeka out uh, during this standoff, uh, it seems that we would have kind of known or seen some footage of that. And, and we'll let's get into that a little bit uh, when we go into MJ's uh, kind of theories in the chat here. But uh, and JJ, you're froze up. Can you hear yeah, us? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Can you hear us? Ooh. Yeah. Oh, we'll give it a second. Yeah, yeah. He he froze up earlier before we recorded, and he came back. Oh, there he oh, goes. he's back. Hey. He's, he's back. He's back. I, I knew you'd come back, so I was like, I'm not gonna boot him yet. Okay, <laughs> so 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 real quick because I kind of yeah, want to say about it. that. I don't. It just timed wanna, out of me. So I want to say I want to save it for uh, part three, okay. but just just briefly. Okay, so we got uh, okay. Zana Zana Canoodle, right? Her her mom, uh, Kara. Yep. She was up on drug charges multiple yep. times, right? Multiple. I want to say she, she might have been the one that didn't show up to her sentencing, which was... <laughs> one the, of them didn't, yes. That following week after the murderers, right? After the murders uh, happened. Correct. So, so, you got, so you got one mom that's got extensive drug charges, actually takes off and kind of goes on what I call a wobbler. You know, she, she just went MIA. 
No, when they did an interview with her, she looked like a gypsy living out of a car. Yes. Yeah, well, she was. She was. She was living in a ragtag motel, probably living in a car and this and that. Uh, All jacked up on fentanyl, and uh, there was one other drug that she was on, probably meth. Okay, so so that's well, so she, that was yeah, Zana's, probably was she, one of her charges was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna download all the information on all the drug charges, all the court dates, and how they coincide with the actual murder dates and and uh, you know what happened after that. We're definitely gonna get into that in part three. I just wanted to give the listeners a little bit of a a little bit of sneak preview there, right? So so then you got. Uh, you got Maddie's yeah, can I, can I add stepmom. One, uh, interject one point there? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I'm glad you brought her up, Kara uh, uh, Cronodal, because one of her charges was for meth trafficking, the distribution of meth. Mm-hmm. So it's not just possession. You know, we're talking actual drug trafficking distribution. Right. And I think there was some type of deal what brought it down to just uh, possession, possibly. Or that may have been... Uh, Maddie's stepmom, who was uh, Corey Hatrock. I believe because, you're right. She pled she her case down, right? Yeah, she pled it down, too. So so we have these two moms that are involved in what, what could be considered high-level drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, what they actually charge them with and what they're actually doing could be two different things if they want to keep them on the string and use them as informants, right? There you go. They're going to give them these charges just enough to hang over their head Without going too crazy, where they're gonna, where somebody's gonna question, okay, well, if that's the case, why aren't they in jail? Okay, so if they no. give them just possession charges and let them out, you know, on probation or you know, house arrest or, or whatever, well, if they're on house arrest, they can't really be out and about doing anything. But there's a theory that these two moms, well, one's a stepmom, so let's make that clear. Yeah, uh, but I believe Madison Mogan's father also had drug charges. Okay, so that's something else that we're going to get into because there was an angle with that also, JJ. But what I'm saying is if they've released these people to go gather intelligence and maybe somebody could be compromised that's on the drug task force would be privy to that information. And all they're going to do is say, okay, uh, just go up, you know, go up the ladder, the, the chain of command a few steps and say, okay, we need to send a message to them to let them know that we know what they're doing and that they need to keep quiet. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And this could have been the message that they sent. I well, mean, I, I mean, give you I a know real world I, example of another, of another drug circumstance, not in the state of Idaho, but over in North Dakota, that's coming to my mind where a college student was arrested for pot possession back in like 2016 or 2017. And the police wanted him to turn as an informant to, to avoid charges on like a half an ounce of pot or something like that. And he ended up getting murdered over it. Half an ounce of pot. Yep, being an informant to avoid charges for half an ounce of pot. So just that's a very basic circumstance that doesn't involve all this other, you know, extra intrigue. So it's these circumstances do occur where these these drug informants get themselves caught up in the with the wrong people, just trying to avoid some some charges. Yeah, yeah. When all they got to do is do a little bit of short time, keep their mouth shut, and then everything is fine. Yeah, Yeah. and possibly just probation in some circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially nowadays, right? Yeah, so earlier that I just thought was weird, and like this is just like a weird, you know, stone thought that I had. (laughs) You mentioned Salt Lake City before as being like the major hub for the drugs to go to, and I'm like, you know, that is like a high Mormon area Mm -hmm. again. And like, I don't buy this. This is why I'm bringing it up, but I mean, it's supposedly known, or maybe you guys don't know this, but like you have Mormons in like Mexico, like or on the border that are supposedly fighting the cartel. I don't believe. 
they're fighting the cartel. I don't believe they're against the cartel. I think that is just optics and for people to be like, oh, such nice people. I actually think they're working together. And if that is possible, you talking about cartels and drugs, I could see if the Mormons are involved, why it would be stopping in Salt Lake City before it goes somewhere else. All right, let me just hit something real quick on that, NY. You remember a few years? I remember a few years back where there was an ambush just over the border in Mexico, and they were Mormons yep. that were allegedly going to a wedding, and the some cartel members came out and took them all out. One escaped, and I think, and they killed kids and everything. And I think Women one little yep. kid, yeah, one little one little kid escaped and one adult escaped, but they wiped out all of them. Those were Mormons. Yeah, they're 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 a fundamentalist just, just sect. Food, of the, food for thought. Food for thought. Sorry, yeah, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you there, Ron. I got I got a, some bad connection here, but yeah, but if, if I can just uh, add some piggyback on your statement, yeah, that, that was a little Baron family. They're one of the prominent fundamentalist sects, one of the more uh, you know powerful or you know richer fundamentalist sects. They're in tight with the Romney sect down there in uh, oh, just yeah. south of just south of the border in Mexico, as in Mitt, Mitt Romney, or as I like to call mm -hmm. Mittens Romney. Um, his father was actually born on that compound down there, uh, Mitten's father. Uh, I believe George Romney. He was the governor of Michigan. Um, but even more intriguing that scenario and situation. Oh, hold on. <laughs> Damn, right. The car was wrecking into something there for a second. Um, sound like a bunch of screech and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but the... Uh, the uh, yeah, so that the, the end of it, the LeBaron family uh, portion of the, down there in the fundamentalist Mex uh, Mexico Mormons down there, the 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 cult, the, the cult Mormons, if you will, because they it was this is back this is the the allegedly I think there's more to it. I think the 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 main mothership in Salt Lake City um, have used those fundamentalist sects is to do their dirty work, if you will, but it's sanctioned, I think, in large part. Uh, that's my opinion, you know, but. In regard to the LeBaron family and specifically and that and the ambush by the drug cartels, which I think you guys bring up a great point here, they did they were obviously involved in something that the cartels didn't like. And it came out afterwards within the Nexium trial of Keith Raniere. Um <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yeah, that uh that uh, those girls down there out of the LeBaron compound were being shipped to Albany, New York to serve as babysitters within the Nexium cult. Oh, the Nexium cult was tied in with the child trafficking. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's another rabbit hole we'll have to jump down then. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. All right. Did you want to get into uh, what do you got for conspiratorial stuff? Uh, let's just I mean, let's just let's just see what MJ has to say. He's got some good info. Whoever it is, uh, says that uh, the Kopeka guy was hanging out with Brian. I'm, I can only assume that would be Koberger. Right. Tried to get Brian to go with him in the house. Brian refused, and then Brent figured he was a snitch. Brent went in. Brian took off, and it says L.E. knows about Brent, who's an ex-seal. Oh, Lord. And, and before that, it says, uh, also said Brian was hanging out with Kopeka, and he was working for the drug task force which I'm thinking he means Kopeka was working for the drug task force. Right. Brent found that he was a snitch and framed him, meaning framed Koberger. Kopeka like and his ex-seal friend were the murderers. Interesting theory. I like the ideas. I mean, some of that is slightly off base as far as factual information goes. And from what I gather, most of it's supposition and rumor mill. 
That's why we call it conspiracy, JJ. Well, what I can say regarding Brent Kopaka is he was a U.S. Army paratrooper, not a Navy SEAL. Um, he served in the 4th Battalion of the uh, um, down there in uh, Fort Bragg. That's right. That's right. There's somebody connects to that, don't they? Exactly. So the, right, the primary right, investigator right. for the Moscow Police Department is a man by the name of Brett Payne. What I find intriguing here is Brett Payne was was a slight he slightly younger ranking, um, lower ranking uh, enlisted guy to Kopaka at the time. Kopaka, I believe, was an E4. I think uh, Brent, Brett Payne was an E2 um, private and versus specialist in the United States Army stationed at Fort Bragg. Same battalion. Same paratrooper unit in 2008, 2009, they were stationed together. Is this what so, they call fourth herd? Were they in fourth herd? Uh, it might, that might be one of their nicknames. I'm not, I'm yeah. not entirely familiar, yeah. but the 82nd airborne out of, um, out of, uh, Fort Bragg is one of the elite paratrooper units. Sure. And, you know, and what even more interesting, the one of the primary knives used by the paratroopers, the U.S. Army paratroopers, is a K-bar knife. Is a K-bar. Yep. Yeah. Did I tell you in the first episode that my dad uh, here that raised me was uh, 11th Airborne, which was part of the 101st Paratrooper? Okay. I think yeah. you, you briefly touched that you had some yeah. connections within your family there, but that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So he, yeah. he, he, he probably owned a, a K-bar knife. A, uh, probably in a 45. He didn't want to carry anything too heavy. Right. But but anyways, he was a jump master, so he had a lot of uh, benefits. Sure. And one of those was maybe you don't have to, you know, you don't have to carry this this heavy machine gun. Here's a forty. Here's a forty-five, a K bar, and a sewing kit. No, I know how that goes. I, but, when I was a younger yeah, yeah. guy in the Air Force, I always got the machine gun. They're like, give it to the the young guy who's not very big, and I yeah. put, get, put on some muscle real fast, carrying around M60. Yeah. Hey, they locked my dad in the mess hall for two weeks because he was too skinny to jump. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> True story. Yes, that was my butt. I was like a buck sixty. So. Looking yeah. wet when I joined, so they're like, "Yeah, yeah. put on some muscle, kid. Here's here's an M, here's an M60 machine gun." Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so is there is there is there you know connection between Copaca and Brian Koberger? Again, I think that's all rumors and, and supposition and speculation at this point. I've not seen anything factual support that. What does seem factual, if you look at the public service record of uh, Copa, um, of uh, Brent Copaca and the public service record of Brent Payne or Brett Payne. They served, they had an overlapping time in service at the same unit at Fort Bragg as paratroopers in 2008, 2009. Now, Brett Payne is from, I, I, I've yet to really find great uh, certainty of the location Brent Kopaka. I keep getting those names swapped out. So I would say Brent and Brett, it's, you know, it's inadvertent. But yeah, Brent Kopaka, I don't know where he's from. I've yet to find out his birth, his, where, where the location is birth, or not so much his birth, where he where he was raised and whatnot. Now, Brett Payne is from Moscow, Idaho. He's a graduate, or not Moscow, from the Moscow region, and a graduate of the University of Idaho. Now, he is the lead homicide detective on this case for Moscow PD. And if you recall, uh, or folks of the interwebs listening here today recall as well, um, early statements made by the Gonzalez family, they were highly critical of the Moscow PD not assigning more veteran officer. That's because Brett Payne at the time of the murders was a two-year rookie veteran, two years only on the, on the force there in Moscow. And he got assigned as the, is the lead homicide detective. He was the rookie of the year, or whatever, out of the police Academy. I get that. I get that part. I was the top graduate in my police Academy class, but at no point in time, would you, would I assume that that individual would immediately be hoisted into the, uh, Leah's lead lead homicide detective in such a monumental investigation because in that small town. So I do find it somewhat, somewhat, you know, p possibly conspiratorial that, uh, that 
Brett Payne's the lead homicide detective when he clearly knows, um, when he clearly knows the, uh, you know, Kopeka from his army days, right? And again, yeah, the, Cop- the Kopeka situation, I don't think it's been flushed out yet because, again, they refused to answer FOIA kind of requests from uh, over there in Pullman. You know, while the radio kind of transmissions are available, they don't seem to speak to a lot of the circumstances that they claim had occurred. You know, so there's a lot of, I think there's a lot, there there could be more. There could be grounds, there's definitely grounds for further inquiry. That's kind of all I'm getting at with, with that one. Yeah, I just find that, like, I did find that connection just really weird anyway. You know, yeah, it's, right? it's, it's, just, it's just, like, even when you have, like, I mean, with all, like, the weird stuff that we're talking about now, you even toss in, like, the whole fucking, I don't know, four hours of not calling the cops or eight hours or whatever that shit was. Yeah. I mean, just and then, Ty, this, it's just, like, you know, so many levels of just weirdness. It just doesn't make the case look right at all. At all. And, it, yeah, it was, it was nearly uh, eight hours, yeah, like, seven hours, 50 minutes, something like that of... No, you know, from the official, from the standpoint of where law enforcement says the time of death versus when the 911 call was placed. Mm. You know, what's a good, um, uh, you know, maybe I'll bring it back up when Ron gets back. Um, sure. I don't, I don't know if this is so much conspiratorial conspiracy or fact, but like I have heard and come across like people saying that, like, um, even in Snapchats, maybe we mentioned it in the last episode too. Mm-hmm. Something with Snapchats, right? I think like there was people even talking about like what happened before the police were called. Correct. Is that actually is that like known as a fact or is that just conspiracy? No, it seems to be a point of fact given the statements of numerous you know parties that are you know tertiary to the you know the the circumstances here, whether it be friends or family of the victims or just the the fellow college students. It seems that these these uh, fraternities and sorority folks would routinely communicate through Snapchat with one another and, and kind of groups they'd already established if you will right mm-hmm. so they didn't just get on there that morning and just start adding they already had it like kind of pre-existing groups on snapchat where they would all share share messages yeah, and, yeah. and apparently uh, according to all you know statements including the uh the fraternity brother of the of the now deceased overdose death drug overdose death uh president from one of the fraternities there in uh, university of idaho he even he even reciprocated that those same statements by saying yeah that he knew about it as early as 8 30 i think maybe nine in the morning via these snapchat messaging groups and again we, we did discuss it in, in in part one and and i think again i don't agree with it but i think in large part um some of those communications can just be written off as the fact that uh I'm, I mean, I'm, clearly the scene seemed like it was cleaned up, right? And there was some some cover up going on, even internally to the college students, right? Right, wrong, or indifferent. That's what they did. A lot of things point to that. However, once again, these organizations, these fraternities, these sororities, they have these kind of group national chapter liability insurance policies. Whereas the statements that they're they're in their guidelines, in which to internal to their own fraternity or sorority is you don't call parents you don't call police you notify your chapter you notify your brothers or sisters within the chapter and then you and you send that up the hierarchy of the chapter before you're calling police before you call um, families so that's written down you know this yeah. these are guidelines in which there has been established by these organizations in which to avoid future incidents of liability because obviously it's it's been an ongoing problem across the nation where these fraternities and sororities have had hazing incidents overdose deaths drinking deaths folks falling from balconies on the third floor of places or roofs and paralyzing themselves and as a result of these activities 
they've developed a process where they want to contain as much information as possible and limit as much liability as possible as opposed to paying out tens of millions of dollars, which is what has occurred over and over in these circumstances. Another thing that uh, I don't, I'm not sure if we talked about this too, but um, I have heard about like supposedly, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say cartels, but almost like drug runners um, or drug gangs. Like there was one that I think uh, was in, is associated with fraternity that is in where Idaho is. And I think like, you know, both campuses, you know, that way. Mm-hmm that supposedly the fraternity is in the same one and that there's another fraternity that's also matches that's in both of them. And like, supposedly they kind of are like rivals in drug running. Have you I heard stories like that? I have, I have not, but it wouldn't surprise me because I, you know, like, like many things, I think people looking out, out for outwards towards the end of any organization, being in a cold organization, the U S government, et cetera, these, these sororities and fraternities, I think people like to look from the outside in like, hey, everybody gets along in that organization, right? And they look, they think there's not competing factions. I would argue that, that you know, things replicate themselves in large scales as they do in small. In any small group, you're going to have competing factions or even in a family or anything else like that. And I think you have that in occult organizations. You have that in, you know, drug operations, et cetera. So are there competing folks that compete to a certain degree within, um, within these fraternities and sororities and drug trafficking, but then later overall, Overall, they're part of a larger club that will protect itself. It's certainly possible. I think the way I look at it, I think a lot of people want to point to like drug cartels, like, oh, Mexican drug cartel did this. I'm not rolling it out at all. I'm not. But what I will say is if you look at the available facts, if you look at the largest pill stamping operation being run out of this fraternity in Washington State, right? Again, according to the drug task, regional drug task force, that's their statements. You look at incidents with cocaine trafficking, uh, Oh yeah, you're good. Background, awesome. You look at the cocaine trafficking of uh, a sorority over there, and um, I I believe it was the same sorority, the chapter, the Washington State University chapter of the same sorority that Kaylee Gonzalez was a member of on the University of Idaho, right? And again, these two universities are only separated by a few miles, and they do act, they act together as one as one organization, really. The universities do. They they have reciprocal agreements and contracts where the, the universities share certain functions and services. And it seems that these fraternities and sororities from both campuses, while there are independent chapters, they do a lot of activities together. And, and even in the ROTC program, so University of Idaho doesn't have an ROTC program. They ship all their ROTC students over to the ROTC at Washington State University. That's another example of how these universities share everything. So I think what what, what goes on, if you if you want to look, think about cartels, well, there are, there's a cartel already operating in this town, in a sense, with these fraternities and sororities. If you have these instances the pill stamp, largest pill stamping operation, the cocaine trafficking, right? You know, are they acting independently from a larger cor- cartel operation? Could they have connections to Mexican drug cartels? These are all possible. But if you want to look at it on the known facts, they already have a cartel operating in these towns with these operations because, you know, why isn't law enforcement shutting down these drug trafficking operations amongst these Greek and sorority, you know, chapters of these organizations on their two universities? It can't be that difficult. Yeah, I have a feeling, JJ, that these sororities and fraternities are the are the local cartel. All right, that's that's where I'm at with well, Ron. Now, could they have you know some other you know connections to Mexican drug cartels, et cetera? It's possible, but there hasn't really been anything to substantiate those claims yet. But the claims that can be substantiated are these fraternities and sororities appear to be running large scale drug trafficking operations. 
Well, if they're getting large amounts of fentanyl, right, uh, mm -hmm. then they got to be getting it from the people that control it, and that would be the Mexican cartels. Sure. Not only, I mean, if they were dealing straightly in meth and stuff like that, well, that's something more that bike gangs, or like you say, the Aryan Nation, yep. uh, and those white supremacy groups, uh, those people would be more apt to be in the meth business. Mm -hmm. just, just from, you know, knowledge that I have, you know, based on, you know, other things that have been reported over the years, you Absolutely. know, you know that this this is their drug of choice, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, but if these kids are dealing, you know, uh, fentanyl, well, then they're getting that. It, that's coming from Mexico, one way or another. Very likely, you know, it, Very unless, likely. unless they have a bigger a bigger uh, fraternity hub in Salt Lake City that might be dealing directly with the cartels. The cartel brings it to Salt Lake City. They go to Salt Lake City, get it, and distribute it maybe to other. Other great fraternities at other colleges that are in other states that are close by. So, <laughs> read, so they, could have, they could have the whole area pinned down. Yeah. And as long as the Mexicans cartels are getting their money, even if it's on a wholesale level, I mean, I got to think they're okay with that because they don't got to go out and police anything. They don't got to go out and, uh, you know, track down money. They don't got to go do any of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you, know Mexican... that, you know where they get that fentanyl from? I saw that shit on TV recently. China. China. Yeah, I was like, yo, motherfuckers are just sending yeah. it from China into Mexico right into here. Yep. Well, the Chinese have said <laughs> wow. the Chinese have set up shop in Mexico and taught them how to make the fentanyl. They're actually bringing raw material to Mexico. That's yo, that's it's, I swear to God. I swear to God. When I was doing my shit and I was making my steroids and I was ordering the hormones from China. And when I started buying tons, like I was making a fuck ton of shit at one point, they started harping on me to buy fentanyl. Yeah, really? And I was like, yo, you're, I even told you, you just jumped like total opposite of like what I'm doing. Yeah, Like, okay. I don't think anybody's like eating out of dumpsters or robbing a motherfucker because they took some fucking testosterone and deck. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to be that guy. I was like, they, but they hounded it to me and they were like, we can send it to you raw and you will make fuck tons of money. And I'm like, I'm good. But exactly, yo, they pushed yeah. that shit on me from China. Okay, so where did the well, original the, uh, man interject real quick, Ron, to piggyback oh, on your last statement? So yeah. let, let's just let's take it from a psychological perspective of the Mexican drug cartel, right? If you wanted to import large volumes of drugs into this country, and you wanted to recruit a network in which to to uh, into your into your drug trafficking operations, why wouldn't the Greek Greek communities of these college campuses be your prime one of your prime targets? A, it's a very uh, high volume of clientele amongst, amongst these campuses, amongst the age group and the and the volume of, of college students and on a nationwide level, right? Because you know, all these chapters already operate on a nationwide organizational level, right? And they also operate with a layer of secrecy amongst the general public. So in my opinion, if, if I was operating a Mexican drug cartel operation, I would target the distribution points of being within these fraternities and sororities because of the layer of secrecy the national organiza organizational network that already exists within within their fraternities and sororities. So I think that's these are great points to bring up as far as possible drug car cartel connections from Mexico being on a national level. And again, it speaks back to my previous statement. If the neighbor Anon Harsh sees this luxury SUV parked at the murder the murder of the 1122 King Street murder house, roughly about the time of the murders um, on that morning of November 13th, and I, as I inferred before, could be one of these woodsman sports uh, students from an, uh, another university who's also part of that same Greek community within the fraternity or possibly sorority. They have females that compete in those sports, you know, 
I think that that would speak to the national drug trafficking operations that could be going on here and possibly culprits of this crime that may want to hide that. Yeah, you know, just in my opinion, cartel members don't have time to do street level stuff. I mean, no, I mean, no, I mean, those are low level thugs, that are, you know, yeah, so, yeah, like, so, like yeah. not even tied to the cartel anymore. Yeah, so they're basically busy human trafficking, which they can make 50 times more the money than drug trafficking, right? Everybody knows that. Yeah, like, you can but, you can sell a human more than once. You can only really sell the drugs one time. Yeah, you could sell a human as over and over and over again until they're dead, right? right. But uh, but who's to say? Another possible conspiracy theory thrown in here that these two moms know that there is a drug. Let's just call it a drug cartel or a crime syndicate, mm-hmm. a drug syndicate that is run by these Greek fraternities and sororities. Sure. And maybe they're, you know, maybe they're seeing that their daughters are getting in just a little too deep. They're going to use this information as leverage to get out of their charges. And there was possibility that it was leaked that they were going to provide intelligence against this nationwide Greek fraternity on a national level. Mm -hmm. And that right there would have been plenty of reason to take all these kids out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let me, let me ask you all about this one question as far as deeping, diving into the conspiracy, conspiracy theory deep end here. And it's one thing I, that's, I find very intriguing with this case and especially from a circumstantial standpoint and also from, you know, just a practical standpoint, if you're conducting a large scale drug trafficking operation, what are you doing with the money? You got to launder it somewhere, right? Would you all both agree with me on that one? Yeah. The money's got to be laundered somewhere. Well, you don't have to go too far to find a massive money laundering operation. In fact, you only have to drive 30 miles north of either city, Whitman, uh, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, Whitman County, or Moscow, Idaho, Latal County, Idaho, Idaho there, 30 miles north of both both locations, kind of, you know, northeast and northwest, you know, is a town called Farmington, Washington. And it is home to the, what was formerly known as the Farmington State uh, Farmington State Bank. Um, which was actually founded in and around the same time as, time as both of those cities, Pullman and Moscow, about 125 years ago. Well, just a few years ago, in 2020, uh, now, I'm, so what I'm inferring is that what I'm inferring here is a drug trafficking operation within these communities in those two college towns pre-existed. A new money laundering operation came in town that became more advantageous for them. They jumped onto that money laundering operation. That's where I'm getting at with this. Just to give you a, a preface to where I'm headed. Yeah, okay. Because people are going to be like, well, but they only came in 2020. And they've been doing it longer, as you already said. Then why would they be involved in this? Well, if you have a new money money laundering operation in town and it, it's better than your old one, well, that's a good time to jump on the new money laundering operation. Okay, well, what's, what's important to remember with these sororities and these fraternities and colleges in general, you have a constant turnover of new customers. Exactly. You do not run out of customers ever. They're not going to shut these universities down, right? Right. So, and it's no secret that some banks are money laundering centers for all kinds of people. Yep. Doesn't matter. I mean, they have car dealers that they're bringing down up here in New England that are tied in with crooked banks. So, if you've had you an operation so, so it's on, no different. Ron, think about this. I mean, like, this is something I could see, like, you know, you know, people who've been around for a while, like, you know, mafia, the mob or whatever. Like you just put somebody in fucking into school so they can actually, you know, actually start the whole process and open up a bank specifically for money laundering. Yep. Yeah, one hundred percent. You get besides that, that's gravy. I would not doubt that. Like banks exist just to launder money. No, there's well, that's, no, there's, well, there's that's what they do. That. That's what they do on a normal day, anyways. 
Like, yeah, take the- no, but I'm just saying, like, specifically, like, actually created. Like, we're just going to well, launch money through this bank. Ron brings up a good point because they can borrow, they can lend out nine times what their what their current mm-hmm. holdings are. So, in a sense, you can make you can make the numbers look really wild whenever you want to in, yeah. that, in that regard, right? You I mean, can so if, a lot of things around. If you think, like, if you're a family that's already been, like, running shit for 40 years and you're like, I'm sure, like, this is just going to keep going on for a while. Why would it just, like, when we were talking about that movie with the, uh, fuck, with the, when he shot the guy with the booties on? Yeah, I mean, they put right. him into the fucking police force. Yep. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Let's put people into banking. Start a fucking bank so we can launder it on our and it's our own company now. No, I mean, we have are, no fucking idea good, how far we can go with shit those like good that. Thoughts. You know. But so this Farmington State Bank in specific was purchased by yeah. FTX, <laughs> the crypto, the cryptocurrency folks, FTX, the folks that have been busted for money laundering already. In fact, this they they were purchased this bank in 2020, right? Along with another uh, cryptocurrency. Operation out of the Bahamas. That's where FTX was headquartered. It was Dell Tech and Bank and FTX. They got together and they purchased out of the Bahamas. They purchased this random bank, rural bank that was 125 years old, just north of these two towns. That happened in 2020. Now, in fe- in January of 2023, the Department of Justice seized 60 million dollars from that bank over all this FTX corrupt uh, money laundering operation stuff. Right. So, if you go back and look at the timeline events of this murder, right on November 13th. 36 roughly 36 hours prior to the murder ftx files bankruptcy in delaware thereby releasing all their financial documents publicly thereby showing that they purchased out this bank three um you know nearly three years ago two and a half years ago at that point now i what i find even more intriguing relative to that bank two things the uh the set how they set up the bank and the money the amount of money was going through that bank right so if 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 you, you folks or any of the folks on the interwebs are familiar, there are regulations amongst banks owning and being involved in the cryptocurrency market, right? So what did they do? They hired the chief legal counsel from the state regulator out of the state of Washington. They had him change the rules, quit the, quit his job, become the chief legal counsel for the new bank. So once Farmington State Bank was purchased, FTX renamed it Moonstone Bank, which again, screams of an occult nature to me. Mm. You know, Moonstone, oh. it's such a strange <clears throat> name for a bank. And here, here, whole, no, go ahead, Ron. What, what, what do you got? Well, here's something that I would like to know because we know the whole Silicon Valley Bank FTX connection, right? Mm-hmm. We did a whole episode on it on uh, Wicked Planet, and we didn't even dig deep into it because I'm in New Hampshire. FTX has a reg- an LLC registered in the state of New Hampshire. Okay. Because state of New Hampshire is one of the five states in the country. It's super easy to get an LLC in, right? Yep. So let's go back to this. What is it called? Moonrise Bank now? Moonstone Bank. Moonstone Bank. Moonstone Bank. All right, let's go to this bank. Let's go back the last five or ten years. Yep. And let's see how many big money loans that they that they granted to people. Yep. That have defaulted. Way ahead of you. So yeah. I've looked at a lot of those things, and I can tell you the biggest thing that that, that comes out in, in, in as a red flag there. So from 2010 to 2020, so the ten years preceding. FTX purchasing uh, the bank and naming it Moonstone. The total number of deposits, according to the FDIC, was we'll just call it X, right? Not to get too too depth, too big into the, the precise numbers. The the previous quarter, before the, the money, the bank was seized in January. The previous you know four months before that, or three months, I'm sorry, they had 10x, right? So you have X the 10 years previous to FTX buying it out, and then 10 times that amount of deposits in one quarter just prior to being seized so 
that right there should tell should paint a pretty interesting picture of the volume of money that's being going through this bank, right? And on top of that, and I know I listened to your I listened to your Silicon Valley Bank uh, podcast, Ron. I, th- I thought mm-hmm. you all did a, a good analysis on that stuff. And uh, I think there's a lot that's a lot of stuff that, that has not been brought to the surface relative to those stories, and I think this is one of them. And so, do you know who funded the so the the lab that is involved in the DNA? Uh, genealogical DNA identification of, of Brian Koberger from the alleged knife sheath and the alleged touch DNA is actually located out of, I think I previously said it was Austin, Texas. I think it's, it's a suburb of Houston, Texas. It's called Woodsville, Texas. It's n- the name of the, the lab is named Authram Labs. Authram Labs is a Silicon Valley, Valley startup funded by Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, strangely with, enough. With FTX money. Well, actually that one's not FTX money, but I mean, the initial funding source comes from the same place, right? So FTX is borrowing money to buy out this Moonstone Bank from from Silicon Valley Bank. That's where the financing came from. Now, uh, and I can't recall the guy's name off the top of my head. The Polish fella who helped find pay, who was one of the uh, co-founders of PayPal, with, uh, along with Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. He's this dude's part of the uh, what I call the PayPal mafia. He's the one who funded the Authram Labs with through his venture capitalist firm with financing from Silicon Valley Bank. So, you know, the dots land back at Silicon Valley Bank between the Moonstone Bank and the Authram Labs. But again, it draws into question again, some of the DNA evidence, the hiding of the DNA evidence, et cetera. And again, the money interest behind both of those things is Silicon Valley Bank. And and it's interesting that this little bank up in Washington uh, had that many deposits overnight. Oh yeah, I mean, it was, as soon as FTX, and that Dell Tech Bank, which they they formed a partnership out of the Bahamas to purchase that bank, as soon as they came to town, the amount of money going through that bank just skyrocketed. Again, it was like a 10-time 10, 10, 10 multiplier in just one quarter versus the previous 10 years. And again, this is according to the FDIC documents that were, uh, as a result, I mean, and other documents relative to the bankruptcy filing on November 11th. So November, again, 36 hours prior to the murders, FTX files bankruptcy. All of this stuff comes public, right? These, these banking records and stuff as part of their bankruptcy filing. 36 hours later, it sounds like there might have been a cleanup crew operation in and around their money laundering bank in in uh, in uh, rural Washington, just north of these universities. I mean, I'm just building a circumstantial yep. case of events here, right? And uh, again, it now- It makes 100% and, sense, though. The, 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 yeah. dot connecting, yeah. the dot connecting is working. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, I kind of made these, I, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, prop myself up in any regard or anything else but i'm saying i made a lot of these kind of connections and and spoke about them publicly in podcasts dating back in february right authram labs was not even publicly known until i believe march this lab that was funded also by silicon valley bank that is the ones who allegedly found this dna profile right so mm-hmm. it seems to be as time progresses and more information is coming out it seems to fit the same storyline is what i'm getting at yeah oh, yeah sh- it's fitting it's fitting very nicely yeah. into the Koberger did it narrative yeah Yeah, exactly so um i think there's a lot of uh more a lot of questions still to be asked in in those lines as far as what is going on with these drug trafficking situations in around those two universities where are they laundering the money if they are laundering the money what else is going on in around that laundry situation out of moonstone bank silicon valley bank right and you know other other players in between and again i say other players in between because the owner of that dell tech bank out of the bahamas that ftx teamed up with to purchase moonstone bank that guy's an interesting character he's the creator and producer of the cartoon inspector gadget 
and he has a lot of strange connections. I've been taking notes for part three. <laughs> I like I like it. Yeah. All right, guys. Oh, yeah, what, do you, so, what do you think? You want to wrap this? You yeah, want to wrap yeah, part two up? Yeah. yeah I, I think we do. I think we just. I think I just helped us dive deep enough into the conspiracy conspiracy theory deep end, so that we can. Uh, well, I had heard some more of that in the future, maybe. But yeah, I've seen that before, and I was like, I was going to ask you to get into that as well because that it really, it sounds kind of outlandish or like wild, like conspiratorial. But like, yo, it just, <laughs> it just, it just seems very fucking sketchy. Like, it's a tight, it's a tight. Oh, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, I will admit it does sound conspiratorial. And uh, one thing I do say is one of my earlier influences on conspiracy theory was an individual by the name of May Brussel. Are y'all familiar with Mae Brussel? No. Nope. She hosts an AM radio show in like uh, the late '60s through the, I believe, the mid '80s. Before she was, a, she was a, a Ganga grandma when she started this radio show. Uh, you know, so a fairly, you know, somewhat elderly Jewish woman. Um, but she was, you know, she was talking about Watergate in like 1971 or something like that before Watergate was even a term. She was talking about the elements of Watergate, the, the people involved, the activities involved that would later become known as the Watergate scandal. She was essentially the first one really talking about it. And she had, would, would admit that it's the only reason she knew about it because she's connecting dots from these somewhat disparate events that are going on in the, in the media, right? And that in, in her idea was if it's going on in the same kind of spatial and geographical, uh, you know, framework. So the, the same time frame, right, as I just built a chronological time frame in the same geographical location, again, 30 miles north of these two universities, that if th those elements are going on and involves some other, you know, factors of the you know, spatial and geographical situations match up, then very likely, as her position was, then those are related incidents. And again, she, and she used that to build this whole Watergate narrative before anyone even knew about Watergate. So I, as all, all I'm saying is I didn't come up with kind of this, the framework of this conspiracy theory it was actually, I borrowed it from the, the May Brussels School of Conspiracy, but she, yeah. uh, she was definitely onto something then. I think there's, there's, there's something to be said about that, that uh, protocol. You know what's interesting when you look back at Watergate now, now I remember Watergate because I was a kid when that was going on. Like, I remember when Nixon was president, right? Sure. So uh, Watergate, sure. by today's standards, us guys, us podcast guys, we would have solved that in like two episodes. <laughs> compared right. compared right. to what's well, going yeah, with on the available today, of information right? now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But well, we mean, have a lot more then, information available, sure. Like, like if the Watergate thing happened, like you know, a month or so ago, dude, we'd already been, we'd already had it clocked by now. Yeah, that would have been old news. That would have been yeah. a hot topic that was ten <laughs> yeah. months ago. Well, yeah. let, me, let me leave you. Let me let me leave you fellows with with one more conspiratorial note in regards to Watergate. So, and the Mormons, as we spoke earlier, because I know Nick and I like talk Mormon stuff. Yeah. So yes. the individual that was so you, you're familiar with the Watergate burglars, the individuals who were involved in the Watergate break. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a show about that, isn't there? Yeah. So the, those guys weren't actually working for the White House. They were contracts employees at the White House, but their actual employer was some something an agency called the is it the Mullen Agency or the McMullen PR agency? And that was a wholly owned, basically Mormon subsidiary run by a man who was gonna be the future senator of Utah, Bob Bennett. And and also I'll, I'll drop one more conspiratorial bomb on you. My mother was actually a Mormon in DC at that time, and from based upon conversations with her and other and other parties that were in the know at the time, she claims she and her she and Bob Bob Bennett were friends. I think she dated Bob Bennett at that time during Watergate. Yeah, I had a lot of those just friends too. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the Mormon the Mormons were deeply involved in Watergate. I mean, and a lot, yeah. that's oftentimes an overlooked thing. And again, Bob Bennett was running this PR agency that was employing the 
the Watergate burglars as contract employees at the White House. So there was a Mormon intrigue to it that it, it gets overlooked. And, you know, and we were talking about Mormon intrigues today with the Salt Lake stuff that Ron brought yeah, up. And, yeah. and again, Nick and I are always chatting back and forth on Mormon stuff. Yeah, I would love to get in on some of those Mormon conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. always telling them, man. Yeah, we got to definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I'll, to hey, I'll always yeah. talk Mormon yeah. stuff, you know. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank cool. You both very cool much. Combo. Man. Yeah. yeah, hell yeah. Ron, you yeah, want to let everybody know uh, what your show is, you know, where they can find your stuff? Plug your show again real quick. Yeah, sure. You can find a Wicked Planet. Uh, it's everywhere. It's on Spotify, Apple, Google. Uh, we're on iHeartMedia now. We're on Amazon Music and Audible.com. Nice. That's Great just idea. the big ones. And nice. you can find them on all the little ones, too. You can find me on Instagram at Ron from New England. And we also have the Wicked Planet podcast page on Instagram. Come and give us a follow. And I'm on Twitter at Ron from NE. I'm starting to get a little bit more active over there. Yeah, I don't right. know why, but but I don't know. We I bounce back and forth between the two. I got a really cool Telegram chat. If anybody wants to join that, it's the Wicked Planet Podcast chat. Come check it out. And NY JJ, thank you for having me on again for part two of this. And I look forward to part three. Of course. Absolutely. Thank you, Ron, for jumping on, man. And JJ, thank you so much. Let everybody know where they can find your stuff as well. Yeah, Nick, I appreciate the invite. I, I always enjoy our, our back and forth on uh, messaging and uh, emails, and, and I absolutely enjoy these conversations. You always have some uh, relevant points to make regarding, especially the occult stuff that I'm always intrigued by learning more about. And uh, I think that's maybe something we could delve into in the future relative to the Pleiades group that started that town in Moscow and some mm-hmm. of these maybe possible occult connections with uh, some of the uh, uh, zodiac symbols you uh correlations you identify with dramatria and uh, even yeah, moonstone bake perhaps so. you know because again moonstone bake just screams a cult to me but and <laughs> ron i i appreciate appreciate you joining us I, I i enjoy i enjoy speaking to a fellow new englander i'm i may not sound like a new englander but i was born in connecticut and i did spend my much of my youth growing up in vermont so i i do very yeah. much identify as a new englander and i always i always enjoy meeting fellow new englanders i uh I, I love the uh, the eccentric attitude of, of, of much of New England and, and, its, and well, its population. So and well, I think you I think you embody that a lot, and that's one of the things I, I enjoy. That we do that we do have apparently. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, no, it's not a derogatory statement. Anyway. It's one of yeah. my favorite things about New Englanders. Yeah, hey, I will tell you I, what, I we're just hard, we're hardworking, no non- nonsense people up here. I mean, we only have five months of good weather, and out of that five, only three is really good. So, and and, and then we got seven seven months where we're freezing our ass off. So we have a lot of time to be inside research and stuff. And and that's why I love this genre so much. I really do. You know what? And and I was talking, actually, we were on a group show last night. And I was saying I was getting really bored with a lot of the mainstream conspiracy theories that are going on. Uh And and that's why I love diving into this stuff, because this is real life Mm -hmm. shit. This isn't a conspiracy theory. Like, this really happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's yeah. always a conspiracy tied into everything that's going on. I don't care. You can find a conspiracy somewhere. And this one has lots of them, and I look forward to digging into them a little deeper. Yeah, so definitely uh, good to see you guys. Thank you for having me on. Yes, for sure. Yeah, look hey, forward yeah, to next Can you time. send me that uh, Telegram chat? I'd like to join your Telegram group for sure. Sure, yeah. Ron, yeah, yeah, Telegram. yeah I'd love to join that, but yeah. Uh, I, Operation GCD, I got a link tree on both my Instagram and my Twitter accounts, both at Operation GCD. In fact, you fellows are the ones that have now got me on Instagram. I've never been on Instagram until like a week or two ago. So, nice. you know, I'm still, still learning the ropes over there. I was having trouble posting stuff at first. I'm like, I got to figure this out. This is somewhat complicated compared to Twitter. Oh, yeah. I have a link a tree. I'm, <laughs> yeah, like I try to post a video. I'm like, you can't post videos here? What is going on here? Yeah, it's, but, yeah, it's a so, little different. 
it's yeah, a little different. different but yeah i uh, yeah. i enjoy it it's, I'm, I'm still learning the, the ropes over there but yeah i mean uh I have a link tree on both sites. Um, I'm not quite on Audible yet, but I remember you mentioned that before, Ron. And I, I, I'm pretty much anywhere else podcast can be found. Yep. Awesome. Thank you both very much. I have all their links in the bottom. I'm pretty sure the Telegram chat's in there already. And, uh, yeah, I do have uh, JJ's links in there as well. So go check out all those things. And until the next one, everybody be well. Later.